Hey there, and welcome to another episode of The Bible. Wait, what? Yes, this is the podcast that unravels the mysteries of the Bible's most perplexing, puzzling, and thought-provoking passages. My name is Rowan, and each session I'm joined by a member of our team at C3 Church, Camden, Picton, and Thoreau, as they quiz me on some of the more complicated, confusing, challenging, and even confronting passages that we read in our weekly Bible reading plan. understand that reading the Bible can be a challenging and perplexing experience. Many people just don't know where to start, they get confused, and so they give up. Well, that's why this podcast exists, to equip you with the tools and the knowledge to explore the richness and depth of the Bible for yourself. So grab your Bible, take a deep breath, and join us as we explore this week's passages. To learn more about us or to get in touch with us at C3 Church Camden, Picton and Thoreau, visit any of our three locations' websites. That's c3camden.church, c3picton.church and c3thoreau.church. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube just by searching for any of our locations' names. So without any further delay, let's dive into today's conversation. My name's Rowan, and I'm flying solo in this episode. In a recent recording with Jeannie, we were talking about uh, some of the issues around biblical literacy and how people find it hard to read the Bible. And I said to her, oh, I've done a study on that in the past called the Two Hour Tour. And some of you listening to this might even have been uh, in our church setting at some point when we've done that. Uh, probably last time was about 2018 with our Camden and Picton crew. And this is a, a basically a, a two-hour flyover, or give or take two-hour flyover, of all the main key themes in the Bible. Main thing to put them put the scriptures into their context. One of the things I find is that people struggle to read the Bible because it doesn't make sense to them. In fact, that's why we're doing this podcast, to try to unravel some of those mysteries. And so one of the things that's very helpful is just being able to understand some of the history, some of the geography, some of the sociology of the Bible. And so I thought I would uh, create a two-hour tour version of our of my teaching for the purpose of inserting it into this podcast. So uh, if you wanted to watch on YouTube, I'm actually screen recording and I'm going to be annotating some notes and maps and so on as well. So you'll have access to that. Uh, we'll also put the notes in uh, a PDF of the notes in the show notes as well. So you can click on that and follow along if you're not on YouTube. Uh, but there's an option there for you to look at it on YouTube as well as listen to the audio podcast. Of course, uh, some of the things I'll do my best to try to explain everything I'm doing as I do it when I draw on annotate the notes, but of course, uh, sometimes things are best seen visually, but I'll leave that up to you. All right, so we're going to look at um, an introduction before we get into it about the issue of uh, the biblical illiteracy as I was talking about. This is a big concern of mine, actually. I think that many Christians struggle to read the Bible from week to week, and a lot of it is just to do with an, incre an increase or increase in the level of 
illiteracy, a decrease in the level of literacy. For basically the first 1500 years of the church, the Bible wasn't really accessible to people. Uh, and then when it became accessible at the production of the printing press about 500 years ago, that kind of triggered the Protestant Reformation as people were able to read the Bible in their own language. And today we have the Bible more accessible to us than we have ever had in the past. I mean, you probably carry multiple versions just in your version app on your phone. And yet the statistics seem to be showing that less Christians are reading the Bible than ever, or they're reading it less, uh, doing less reading of it than ever. And I'm concerned about that because the Bible is the fundamental uh, mouthpiece by which God speaks to us about our world. And so for my part, one of my main passions is to teach the Bible in a way that uh, makes it come alive, that makes it something people want to be a part of and want to read, rather than just something that they tolerate or don't know what to do with. So as I said, that's the purpose of this podcast. It's also the purpose of this particular episode in the podcast. And hopefully by the end of this session, you will have learned a few things that you didn't know, put a few stories and themes in place that will help you to just uh, grasp more of the Bible as you read it. I think a lot of people say to me, Rowan, I understand the New Testament. I don't understand the Old Testament. And I totally get that uh, for a whole host of reasons. The New Testament is, is biographical largely. It's letters that uh, that make sense. It's written to uh, Greco-Roman culture, which is certainly very archaic compared to ours. But that said, it's still very similar um, compared to some of the Eastern thinking that we see in the Old Testament. In fact, our Western worldview is, was based upon the Roman world. So uh, it can be very confusing to read the old stuff, the prophecies, and some of the stuff that uh, comes from you know a thousand years, a thousand years before Christ, which just is confronting and challenging to us. And so if you're one of those people, stick with me, because I love the Old Testament, and um, hopefully I can give you some tools in this session that will help you to uh, begin to study the Old Testament as well. So the next thing is the issue is that I want to talk about is the problem with textbook approach to scripture. That is a, a big concern that's come about in more recent times. You know, when the Bible was originally uh, written down, it wasn't written down with chapters and verses. It was designed to be read, not so much necessarily just studied alone. Scriptures were read in, in, the, in church. I think Paul says to Timothy, read, devote yourself to the, the, the reading aloud of Scripture in, within the church. And so when we have this textbook approach, if we approach the Bible a bit like we were with a science textbook or a, math, a maths textbook, we're actually looking for little bits and pieces and snippets that we can teach ourselves. There's benefit in that, yes. There can be some useful ways to get some promises and some, some words from the Lord out of that. But it can be dangerous as well because we fail to put the scriptures into its context. And when we do that, we can make this Bible pretty much say whatever we want, and we can ignore the things that uh, that it's not saying. Sometimes we, we think it's saying something because it seems like it's saying that at the literal level, but it's not really because if we put it back into its context and ask the questions of the text, what is the author trying to say? Where does this fit? Then it can be totally a di different perspective. So the Bible has one overarching subject, and I'm sure that you would be aware of that. Uh, that overarching subject is actually a person. His name is Jesus. And in fact, this two-hour tour is sort of loosely based on the concept that we find at the end of the Gospel of Luke when uh, two of Jesus' disciples were uh, heading to from Jerusalem to Emmaus on a walk because Jesus had died and they were feeling uh, like depressed. They were feeling hopeless. And Jesus showed up to them and they didn't recognize it was him. And it says Jesus led them on a Bible study, basically took them through the Old Testament and showed them all the scriptures from the beginning to the end that talked about him. 
man, that would have been an incredible study to be a part of, that two-hour tour, um, as they did that seven-mile journey. Uh, I'm sure, it's, in fact, they say our hearts were burning within us as he talked with us on the road. So uh, I don't presume to be Jesus here, but I do believe that we can, in two hours, we can get a good overview of Scripture, a tour through the Bible, which will help us to grasp a better understanding. So the important thing I want to get across as we introduce it is the value of reading the Bible in its historical, its textual, its sociological, and its geographical context. Historical context. I don't know if you're a history buff like I am. I hated history in school. I decided I wasn't going to do history and uh, elected to do geography instead, which I always say it's useful because I can read a weather map and I know what the Arctic tundra is. That's about it for three years of high school geography. Um, But uh, I didn't want to do history, and yet... Now, I'm a massive history buff. I love everything about ancient history, modern history, you name it. I love it. And uh, it is really helpful to have some history. So a bit of what we're going to talk about in this session is historical context. Textual context, I've already kind of talked about that a little bit. Textual context is being able to read the scriptures within the context of the actual texts that were written. Was it a letter? What was the genre that was being used? Was it um, was it uh, poetry? Was it exaggeration? Was it historical narrative? We need to know what the different contexts are in order to be able to allow the scripture to say what we want. For instance, uh, Psalm says that God hides us under the shadow of his wings. Well, clearly that's talking metaphorically there. Uh, you know, God doesn't have wings in that way. So helping to understand the context, the type of text that you're reading at any given time is important to us. Sociological context is important too because culture is always changing. As I said, the culture, if you go back to the time of Abraham, about 2000 BC, uh, that's way back in the Bronze Age, basically in early stages of of civilization. Civilization is sort of began in the in the between 3000 and 2000 BC as we know it, uh, cities and so on. And so it's a very different context to say even uh, jump forward to the time of Christ 2000 years later. You think about it, we, how much we've changed our society in the last 2000 years. Sometimes we think, oh, it's all Old Testament. It must all be the same. But the Old Testament uh, covers a period, well, from Abraham onwards, it covers a period of about 2000 years. And then you've got all the prehistoric stuff prior to Abraham as well in the uh, first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, which we'll talk about in a moment. So understanding some sociological context is important. Geographical geographical context is another one that is important. And we're going to look at some maps uh, along this process. I don't know if you're a lover, as I said, of geography. I I wasn't a great fan of, of what I learned in high school. But uh, it, when it comes to understanding maps of the Holy Land, a bit of ge- geography of the Holy Land is useful because it's often referred to metaphorically in the scriptures. And um, you can read places and names and and uh regions and all that sort of stuff. And if you don't have any basic geography, it's it just goes over your head. But if you do have geography, it can be incredibly helpful just uh, to paint some picture. Nothing quite like going and walking and seeing the Holy Land and walking around the Sea of Galilee. And then when you read the scripture, it really comes to life. Uh, I do have another, uh, another tour, a virtual tour of Israel that I did in 2020 in the middle of COVID, which is available on YouTube. If you want that, reach out to us and we can get you a copy of that. It's like four uh, 90-minute sessions where we did a virtual tour of the Holy Land and I explained lots of stuff. That's great for geography as well. 
and uh, we're planning, hoping to head off to uh, Israel in May 2024 as well for another trip for anyone who might be interested. All right, let's press on to look at the first signpost. And we've called this the two-hour tour. So we're going to stop at certain major signposts along the way. The first one being uh, signpost number one is the beginning. Okay, the beginning of time, the story of creation, the Garden of Eden, and sin, and all those things that happen in the right at the beginning of the Bible. Let's dive right in there. First thing uh, is worth noting is that there was a beginning before the beginning. You know, Genesis 1 1 starts with, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yet, John 1 1 to 4, way in the New Testament, actually has a different beginning uh, that John refers to. It says that in the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And it goes on like that, talking about Jesus and saying how Jesus became a man and came in the flesh. And so, that is the beginning before the beginning. It talks about how God, well, how Jesus existed in the beginning, uh, before anything else was made. Colossians 2, Colossians 1, somewhere in there. Colossians 1, Colossians, I think it's Colossians 2, also talks about this as well, as Christ as the the one through whom all things were made, and without him nothing that is made was made. So that's the beginning before the beginning, that, the God, that, that God, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit created the heavens and the earth. Was it seven days or was it 14 billion years? This is a question that uh, generates a lot of debate, a lot of uh, strictly held emotion on all sides of this debate. You've got the new atheists arguing that Christians and Bible people who believe anything but 14 billion years are crazy. We've got Christian creation scientists who believe that everybody who believes in evolution is an idiot, and it can be incredibly hard to navigate. And uh, my view, I have changed or or altered my view to some perspective in more recent years. Um, My basic view is I'm not too perturbed one way or the other. I was taught that to not believe in a literal seven-day creation was to somehow discredit all of the morality of the Bible. It was very basically a slippery slope from there. If you didn't believe it literally, then you couldn't believe um, anything else in the Bible. I've changed my view in more recent years, and I'm much more comfortable with the perspective that uh, God could have used a much longer period of uh, to create that um, we could well have evolved from other mammals. I'm not particularly fussed by that. I, what I do believe, though, is that we are moral beings and there is something unique about humanity. So at some point, um, there there was a, an injection of morality and expectation. There was something different about human beings compared to all of the other species that lived. So even if you take the 14 billion year approach, I still can reconcile with that, the fact that at some point uh, God ordained humans to be special and he imaged us with his image. We that is a, That to me is a fundamental. You cannot extract the concept that humans are created in the image of God to reflect his image. If we do that, we are in big trouble, then it's a slippery slope. Then we can basically argue, well, there's no morality because we just do whatever we want to do, whatever's best for us. And so at some point we have to understand now we are created by God to image him on the earth. So moving on to the actual story of Genesis, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, particularly the story of creation and the events of Eden that you'll find in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Same question, is it an allegory or is it actuality? 
and does it really matter? And once again, um, I would hold the same view as I did about the other one. I'm quite comfortable with it being literal. I'm quite comfortable with God picking two people and imaging them and saying, you guys need to go and spread out across the earth. I'm also comfortable with it being an allegory. It does not change my perspective. So I'm not going to lose sleep over that. I'd love you to do your research uh, and think about it yourself. And I know that there'll be people out there, Christians that have been around for a long time, who will who be very concerned about what I just said. And uh, and I have spent a lot of time wrestling with this and looking at it. And I look at it from the perspective of the fact that there are a lot of people out there in the world who are seeking truth, who are looking for answers. And maybe if we just hard and fast go down the literalist view, that we run the risk of not even allowing them to get across the line. But if we are prepared to at least consider the fact that if these stories are allegorical, what does that change about what they are trying to teach? And what I have found is that the morality behind the story doesn't need to change. Uh, we use allegories and metaphors all the time to illustrate points. Jesus told parables to illustrate points. So I'm not bothered by that. If it's an allegory or it's actual, I think that the the, the morality, the story about human sin, the desire that we have to uh, take for ourselves at the expense of others, that remains the same. Whether it was a literal tree and a literal piece of fruit or whether that is an allegory illustrating the condition of the human heart, the human heart condition stays the same. So for me, does it really matter? Well, I think it doesn't, but that's just me. I don't think it matters. And so we have uh, the story of sin, even if uh, even if it's uh, an allegory, the issue of sin stays the same. And so in Genesis 3, we see the story of the fall of humans, Adam and Eve falling, uh, choosing for themselves. And in essence, I like to say when they sinned, they chose for themselves what was right for them. And when they choose for themselves what's right for them, it's at the expense of what's right for everybody else. Instead of trusting God to provide for them, instead of trusting that God says, hey, there's more than enough in creation for all of you. There's an abundance in this garden. Once again, metaphorical or actual doesn't actually matter. The principle is God has created more than enough. God is the God of El Shaddai, more than enough. But do we trust him that he will raise us, he will teach us, he will guide us? Or do we say, no, I don't trust God. Did God really say this serpent said? And then we see for ourselves, and this key theme that comes up over and over again throughout the scripture, based on the model of Genesis 3, it says Eve saw that the tree was good for gaining knowledge. She wanted it and she took it. And I think that is what sin is in each of us. We see something we think is good for us. We want it and we take it. And usually in the process of taking it, we're taking away from someone else. We're... we're, we're um, damaging the image of God in another one of his creation. And ultimately, that's that's um, devastating to God because he loves all creatures created in his image, all humans created in his image. So in Genesis 3, we see this sin take place and we see what the theologians call the proto-evangelium or the proto-evangel. Proto meaning first and Evangelium meaning good news, the first good news. And so right in Genesis 3, right at the moment when sin has entered the world and God could have obliterated and punished sin, he promises Eve the Messiah, the first reference to one who would come through the woman's bloodline from the fu- in the future and would crush and destroy the seed of the serpent. At the same time, it says the serpent will bruise at the heel of, e- of the, the, the son, 
or the seed of the woman. And what I love about that is that uh, that's a picture of what happened on Jesus. I mean, Jesus died on the cross and it was horrific, but really it was just a it was just a bruised heel compared to the the crushing of the head that uh, Jesus did over the serpent upon the cross. So the proto-evangelism, the first time, the first reference to a Messiah, the first reference to a Savior, the first reference to someone putting it right, comes right at the very point in Genesis 3 where sin enters the world. So that's the beginning the beginning of the story, just the first three chapters, and everything comes back to those stories. Everything about human nature comes back. I find myself back in those passages more often, way in proportion to the amount of times, the amount of chapters they take up in the Bible. Everything filters back through the beginning. The word Genesis means beginning, and so all of the key themes, key uh, key concepts of Scripture, they all have their genesis in Genesis, and so it's good to be able to go right back there to the book, not just the first three chapters, but indeed all of the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. All right, we're going to stay in the book of Genesis, and now we're going to move on to look at the story of the flood. All right, we're going to look at Noah's Ark now. This story is very familiar to Sunday schools. Nearly every uh, Sunday school kid will learn the story of Noah's Ark, which is amazing in itself because as beautiful as that story is and the picture of the animals floating in this boat, we have to think about the fact that the story tells us that most of the world, all but one family, were completely drowned. So isn't it interesting how these stories can be very confronting, but we find ways to sanitize them for our kids. So we're going to look at the story of Noah, Noah's Ark and then the new beginning. And to do that, we need to take a look at the downward spiral that takes place from the beginning of sin in Genesis 3 through to Genesis 11. It's a picture of a spiral of sin, a world out of control. And so what happens is over time, they just get so, so more wicked, evil, selfish, self-focused against others. And so you see the length of life, the licentious living that they have, it just goes from bad to worse during this time to the point where God actually has to say, look, this is not going to work. This is this is a world out of control. They're hurting each other. They're harming one another. They're destroying the image of God in one another. That's the picture that the the author of Genesis wants you to get from Genesis chapter three, verses uh, Genesis chapter three through to chapter eleven. But there is some confusing stuff that I want to touch on right now. The first the the. The first one I want to mention is the Nephilim, the Nephilim there. What are the Nephilim? You see this mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, right at the start of the book of Noah, uh, the book of story of Noah, and then it actually says afterwards, it talks about the Nephilim, it says the Nephilim were uh, on the world, in the world on those days, and also afterwards, and then it describes them, it says, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and had children by them. And there's a lot of conjecture about what does that even mean? What does the sons of God coming to the daughters of men mean. And there's been two main schools of thought throughout history. However, one has much earlier roots than the other, and the one that has earlier roots is actually the weirder of the two. Um, So the first thought I want to mention is the less weird one, and that is to say that they, they, when it says the sons of God, they call it the line of Seth view. They actually believe that the sons of God refer to the descendants of Adam's son, Seth. Uh, and somehow these human descendants um, had children and created uh, these Nephilim, uh, whatever they are. The word Nephilim 
uh, actually just means fallen ones. It has something to do with them. In fact, some versions say giants. Well, they kind of were giants, but that's not what the word Nephilim means. Uh, it actually means fallen ones. And so there's this lines of Seth view, which um, is not very common. Well, it's more common these days, but it's certainly not been the most common one throughout history. The most common view is comes largely out of and what would have been the prevailing view at the time of Jesus. It's very likely Jesus believed this view, and, and this would have been taught around him. It comes out of the Book of Enoch, which was an apocryphal book, which was written um, written not long before before uh, Jesus' time, in, in the intertestamental period. And in this book, there's a belief that shows that the Jews of the time, and probably largely throughout most of history, believed that what had happened, and this is a bit of a trauma alert because this is quite a horrific story, but that uh, the Nephilim were actually the, the, the hybrid children of divine beings, namely demons, um, wayward angels who had left their place, left their abode. You'll see this in Second Peter and you'll see this in Jude, references to the book of Enoch. They left their abode. They, they went outside of the constraints that God had put them in, on them and somehow they were able to um, have children by women. And the end result was these Nephilim, these fallen ones. And if that does seem strange, just think about it more from the perspective of pretty much every religion you will find on the planet will have some kind of belief about these demigods. Somehow they're divine half uh, you know, half divine, half human beings. Uh, Hercules, Heracles, the Greek, uh, the Greek god. He was actually a, a demigod who was the child, the offspring of um, of others. I think Paris, uh, not Paris. Uh, no, it is Hercules. I'm to, some of the ones in in um, in the um, Homer's Odyssey and Homer's writings are like that. Uh, other religions as well. You can go to South American religions and cultures and you'll see belief about this. So it's just there to say, yes, it's strange. It's one of the weirdest things you can see. Um, and it also says that the Nephilim were on the earth afterwards and uh, after the flood as well. Uh, if this is the case, then it seemed like the, the enemy was still trying to distort the bloodline. So why would there be Nephilim? Well, the argument is, the prevailing argument is that... that uh, God had said to the serpent back in Genesis 3, he had said, I'm going to bring um, the, your conqueror through the seed of the woman. And so that seed is this descendant line that ultimately comes to Jesus. It goes through uh, a, 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 goes through the nation of Israel. It goes through the, nation, uh, through the tribe of Judah. It goes through the line of David and ultimately comes to Jesus. And if you read the scriptures through that lens, you realize that the devil is going to do everything he possibly can to distort the bloodline, to destroy it to um, intaminate, contaminate it. And that's the argument of the Nephilim, that the devil was trying to contaminate the bloodline in some way so that the promise could not be fulfilled, but God was able to work around it. So that's the story of the Nephilim. We won't go into any more detail. It's just you may not have even read that and we skipped over it, wondering what it was. It's worth doing some research into that. Uh, but don't get too hung up on it. Um, it's, it's one of those rabbit holes you could go down and it goes beyond being interesting to actually being something that can, track, you can take you away from the main theme of Scripture. A next question I wanted to ask us is, was it a literal flood? Was there a literal flood that flooded the whole earth? And this is, again, one of, those, one of those questions where I would have once upon a time said absolutely yes. And I'm not saying it wasn't. Um, it may well have been. There's no evidence to suggest that it actually has. There's no historical evidence. They found no archaeological evidence. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. One thing would be that if there was a literal flood, you wouldn't necessarily expect that you would find archaeological evidence for that very easily. Now, I was always of the opinion, absolutely, it had to be. Once again, I'm not as I'm much more comfortable with the flexibility of going, well, even if it's not, 
the story behind it is still there. Now, there are other ancient um, writings that have evidences of floods as well. And so that could mean that that's just their telling, retelling of the story. Um, as the as humans spread out after the flood, they, they twisted it over time and there are different stories. Uh, it could be that this Noah's flood, which was the, no, the book of Genesis, which was written uh, considerably later than some of the other Babylonian writings around. There were Babylonian um, texts that predated this uh, the book the right of the writing of the book of Genesis by um, quite a long time. Well known in the area at the time, and they also talk about a flood. And there's, so there's some interesting parallels there. It could be that, as I said, it was just because they all had flood, uh, they all knew of the flood, or it could be that the writer was using these stories and repurposing them for their own purposes. And you'll see that a lot. That's actually quite a valid argument, I think, that a lot of the writings, especially in the first, especially in the book of Genesis especially, a lot of the stories in there are, um, are very similar to some of the stories around about, but they could be repurposed. In fact, right throughout the Pentateuch, right through to the law and so on, uh, they are parallels in many ways to a lot of the ancient Babylonian texts, but they reveal to us the nature of Yahweh. They reveal to us God's way, God's nature in a way that is so radically different to the Babylonian and the other pagan gods that were worshipped um, in the area around about it. Now, at the end of the flood, Noah spends 40 days and 40 nights um, while it's raining, it says, and then he's in the in the boat with his family for about another year, and in total, it's about a year before they come out. And at the end of um, them coming out, Noah begin. It's the story is it's a new beginning. You see, God had a, the story goes that God had uh, decreated the earth, so humans uh, were created. In the beginning of Genesis, God had created and brought order out of chaos. He had brought land out of the sea, and he had made order in the world. And humans, through their depravity in Genesis three to eleven and their selfishness, were disordering the world. And God says the end result of disorder is going to be complete decreation. You're decreating the earth uh, through all of your selfish living. And so the flood is seen as a picture of complete decreation back to how it was in the beginning, where it was just the waters covering the earth. And so we need to see this story and this covenant that God makes with Noah as a new creation, a, a new beginning. In fact, there's a lot of similarities between what God says to Noah and what he had said to Adam and Eve. He says to Noah in this covenant, he says, I want you to go out from here, fill the earth, subdue it. That's uh, that's Genesis um, Genesis 1 language, Genesis 1 and 2 language, where God says to him, go, he says to the man and woman, fill the earth and subdue it. And so there's this new creation that takes place. And I think that's how you're supposed to read it. Whether it's literal or not, the moral is God uh, allowed humans to decreate through their mess, but he recreates and starts the project again. He will fulfill the project that he anticipated that he had started in the book of Genesis. And then at the end of this passage, we have the table of nations, just this list of names in Genesis 10. And a lot of people will just skip over that and go straight to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. The purpose of this tower table of nations, though, is that this is actually an origin story for these people who are reading this, the people of Israel who are reading this as they have been through the Exodus and they're forming up their nation. And this is um, going to be a way for them to tell who they are and identify who they are in the place of everyone around about them. And so you'll see all the nations uh, that they interact with at that time mentioned in this in, in this table of nations. There's the, the, the Canaanite nations and the Hittite nations and all the people that they would relate to are all in there. So it's like an origin story. doesn't mean much to us, but it was very important to them to the, also know who 
that, that gave them some context about what nation came from what other people group and where were they all related. And one of the things you'll see is that ultimately the, the belief there is that they were all deeply related to one another, which should carry, tell us something about their their deep hatred they had for other nations when really we all trace our seed back to uh, the one human seed. All right, we are going to move on now and we're going to look at the patriarchs starting at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, the patriarchs. By now, you're probably thinking, how are we going to get through all this when we're still at Genesis 12 and we've been going so long? Don't worry, we spend a bit of time in Genesis and then we'll speed up quite considerably through the rest of it. But as I said, Genesis is very much the start of the book, the book of beginnings. A lot of doctrines and things make sense if we have the book of Genesis, some level of understanding of the book of Genesis. Um, so the patriarchs, who are the patriarchs? These are the father figures of the nation. And don't get hung up on the father language right there at the moment with patriarchy is a whole different conversation, which we've been talking about on the podcast and other contexts. This is not the context for that, other than to say that these societies were largely patriarchal societies. Whether we agree with that, like that, or whatever, it is what it was. They were largely patriarchal, these, um, these um, ancient Near East cultures. And so we have uh, really three, I'm going to say three and a half patriarchs. Normally the patriarchs are referred to as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I'm going to put Joseph there in slightly smaller font on my signpost as well, just because uh, he also has a part to play. But these are direct lineage. Abraham is the father of Isaac, and Isaac is the father of Jacob, and Jacob is the father of Joseph and his brothers. So we have the story of the patriarchs. So we're going to look at Abraham who is the father of the faith. He is the father of the Jewish people. He's the one they identify with as their founding father, if you like. And so we'll start with him. Abraham uh, goes on a journey. His name is originally Abram, and it's changed to Abraham. God changes it to Abraham. And uh, that is a an addition of the Hebrew letter H, the Hebrew version of H. Uh, ha, I think it is. It's actually the breath. Ha, ruach. It's a, it's a breathy sound. When we have Abram and we put in Abraham, you can hear the ham, that's a breath sound. So the H became known to represent the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach of God. Um, and so with that in mind, we recognize that when God changes his name to Abraham, he's actually breathing something new into him. He's supposed to think about the breath of new, new image, just like the empty Adam body had to have the breath of God. It says in Genesis, the, he breathed into him and the the man became a living being. There's a sense of new life. Abraham went through that with his name change, as did his wife, Sarai, who became Sarah, once again with the breath name. Now, Abraham is referred to as the father of faith, as I said. That's uh, referred to in the New Testament, but he's very much the, the father of the Jewish people, the, the point at which they mark themselves as having their foundation. He is a key finger, figure in uh, Christianity, Judaism and Islam, you'll find him referencing all of them. And what's really important for us in this context, because it has connotations that play on even to this day, is the Abrahamic covenant. You may have heard recently the Abraham Accords, which is a, a term that's been used. I think that was, I think that's the ones that Donald Trump was supposed to be involved in trying to get peace in the Middle East. Uh, I think that might be it. Anyway, this this concept of this covenant that God made with Abraham, and we're supposed to see that. Uh, after the mess of 
the first 11 chapters of Genesis all the way down to the Tower of Babel and the scattering. And it seems like there's no chance whatsoever for the future of God's plan. God starts his plan, reboots his plan with one man. That man is Abraham. He calls him out of, we're going to see, calls him away from his home. And he says, I'm going to do something in you, which is going to reboot my plan. And we find that plan in, uh, we found that covenant in Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. Uh, which is a pivotal point. There's a big difference between Genesis, the end of Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. We've been talking about the whole world in Genesis 11. Now it's narrows down in Genesis 12 to one man. And will eventually, the story of the Bible will eventually open up again um, to include, include all of humanity finding hope uh, and having this, this uh, covenant fulfilled in all of humanity. So Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it's also reiterated again in Genesis 15. And this is the 1 to 3 here. Just It's important just we read this so you get the context of what God, what God says in this covenant. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you with contempt. And all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you. This uh, covenant conversation has been the topic of much discussion, much pulling apart. What what does it really mean? What are the contexts of it? And I just want to pull out a few things. First of all, that the promise is that through this one man, all of the nations would be blessed. There's something about Abraham that was going to bring a blessing to all the nations. And that was actually a, a, a second evangel, if you like. We had the evangel, um, a proto-evangel in the in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden about the serpent. And uh, I guess you could say Noah had a, a promise as well. But then here in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God is actually promising that in the seed of Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, the entire nation would be blessed. So this is actually, this came to be read as a Christ prophecy, a prophecy about the Messiah, one who would come. So there's a promise of Christ through this line. That's the first thing I want to pull out of here. The second thing is there is a promise of land in Canaan. This land that Abraham was living in, there's actually a promise there that uh, they would be able to inhabit that land, that there would actually be uh, a plot of land that God says for them, the land of Canaan. And that's actually what causes a lot of the tension in the Middle East with Israel and the Palestinians today is the conjecture over who does this land belong to. And we'll talk about that in other contexts in this podcast, but that is uh, coming from this, this, this thing that God promises them land. The last thing is that uh, we read about in Genesis 15, I think it is, that this promise is unconditional. In fact, Abraham is asleep when he receives these promises. It's uh, God's. The picture is supposed to say that it was actually not dependent upon us. It was something God was going to do even without us being involved. He was going to fulfill his purpose for humanity regardless of us. So that is the uh, story of, or the overview of this guy, Abraham. Now we're going to move on and I'm going to show you a little map so you can listen along. I'll do my best to describe it to those of you who are listening because I know most people are listening to the podcast and that's totally fine. That's why podcasts are easier than trying to watch YouTube videos. Um, as I write this, as I record this, we've had over 1,200 downloads of the podcast and about 80 or 90 views. So totally expecting that people will be listening to the podcast. So for those who are listening, what I have in front of me is a map of the Middle Eastern region during the time of uh, Abraham during that time, around about 2000 BC, during the time of the patriarchs, about 2000 BC through to around about 1400 BC, thereabouts, something like that. And in in uh, in this time, uh, there's a 
actually, I'm just looking at this map here and it probably, yeah, no, that's the right, it's the correct time frame. This is the correct time frame because obviously nations change over time, but this is a pretty accurate rendition of what we had during that time. And so I want to draw your attention to just a couple of things on the map. Uh, the land of Canaan is what is in modern day Israel and it borders onto the, uh, the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a very rich, fertile land in the north and it's very arid and dry in the south. And it was the land of Canaan that Abraham was living in when he received this promise and he was told that he would inherit that land. In the meantime, they uh, moved down to uh, Egypt. They came down here to Egypt and they lived down south in the land of Egypt for a period of time before and was in slavery there before they went back up into and inherited the promised land, which was the beginning of the fulfillment that Abraham had. Abraham had originally come from Ur of the Chaldeans. And Ur of the Chaldeans is about a, a I think it's like a six, probably about a thousand kilometer journey away, way, way over in what is probably the southern end of modern Iraq or even in modern day Kuwait somewhere, right over near the Persian Gulf. And uh, that's where he came from. And he moved with his father, or his father moved him and a few of his family, and they stopped at a place called Haran. They actually followed what is called the Fertile Crescent. And if you look at my map, you can see a large green band that uh, follows across the northern part of the Arabian Peninsula and then turns south into Israel. It's called the Fertile Crescent because it's shaped like a crescent. And it's um, because that's the way that the Euphrates River flows. And uh, you couldn't travel without water. You couldn't really live without water. And so on my map, you, if you were to draw a, uh, if you were to take a trip as the crow flies straight across the Arabian Desert, you would find it's a much quicker trip. But without the ability to travel through the desert, it was very hard to do that. So people would travel via what they called the Fertile Crescent, which would take them a long way from, if they were right down in the Persian Gulf, they would have to travel northwest for about seven or 800 kilometers and then turn and head southwest down towards uh, Egypt and Africa. That was the Fertile Crescent. They needed to stay near water. So just thought I'd point that out as that's worth noting on this map. If you read about the Hittites, the Hittite culture, which we read a lot about in scripture, that was way up in what is modern day Turkey. So north of uh, north of Israel and the Egyptians still in the same place. It's the longest uh, running nation in history. They think it probably has about, uh, I think, 4,000 plus years of of history as a single nation. I don't think any other nation has uh, has done that. They maintained a degree of um, autonomy uh, as, a, as a people group during that entire time. Even though Egypt's a very impoverished country today, it still maintains that history. So that is down south. And the only other thing I'd like to point out is in between Egypt and Israel, there's a funny little uh, sort of V-shaped block of land that uh, borders the Red Sea, and that's called the Sinai Peninsula. And Mount Sinai is traditionally in the middle of that when they come out of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea. They go to traditional spot of Mount Sinai is in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula. This is a desert, uh, quite an arid part of the land, but it's not that far from there up into Israel and into the lusher parts of the mountainous and, and uh, wetlands of Israel where they can be very fertile and they can grow things. The next map I want to look at is a modern map of the same thing. So this uh, this is just a Google Maps screenshot of modern day uh, regions so you can get a picture for how things work in terms of um, comparing the old with the new. 
And so um, it's not probably not going to mean a lot to those who are listening, but uh, I've sort of alluded to the main players in the area. Uh, a modern day Iraq sits where uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, it sits on the on the Sinai Peninsula, uh, on the Sinai Peninsula, it sits on the Fertile Crescent, as does much of modern day Syria. Syria is uh, just to the north and east of Israel, and uh, obviously there's a lot of Syrian refugees. There's been a civil war raging in Syria for uh, many years now. It's quite horrific. Aleppo is in Syria, uh, Damascus is in Syria, a lot of the places that you find on the news with refugees and so on. Immediately to the west of uh, to, immediately to the east of it, the modern-day nation of Israel is the land of Jordan. Uh, that's what it's called today. It was for a long time, um, even in Solomon's reign, it actually belonged to Israel uh, right during that during the period of time uh, up to and including Solomon's reign. The Israelites did live there. We'll look at that when we get to the tribes of Israel. Uh, but now it is uh, uh, owned separately, different country, uh, the country of Jordan, an Arab country. Immediately to the north of Israel is Lebanon. And shout out to my son-in-law, Lebanese Nick. And uh, Lebanon is a small country on the coast, um, very going through some very difficult times economically at the moment. Um, and still uh, quite a lot of antagonism between uh, some of the extreme groups in Lebanon and Israel. And so there's actually a demilitarized zone between the two uh, run by the United Nations to keep them apart. And then we have, uh, let me see if I can zoom in. I'm going to, I didn't do a very good job of zooming in there. I was already enlarged as much as I could be. I want to just point out some dotted features. If you look at a Google Maps, I think this is just helpful for understanding the context of Israel today when you see it on the news. If you look at a map of Israel, you'll find three dotted areas uh, that are worth noting, tiny little dotted areas. One is in the northeast of the country, and that is what's called the Golan Heights. That's a disputed territory that Israel, uh, it belonged to the nation of Syria, and Israel uh, took it back, or took it, during uh, the Six-Day War of 1967. In this war, they took three plots of land, which they still control today. And these are what we call, you might see, called the disputed territories. The first one, the Golan Heights, the, the one that's most often in the news is the West Bank. And the West Bank is on the west bank of the Jordan River. And so it's a sort of a kidney-shaped area. And uh, it is in this Palestinian territory that is now currently um, under Israeli control. And when we take a team, we go inside the West Bank. Bethlehem is inside the West Bank. Um, it's probably the most famous city. Jericho is inside the West Bank. So there's some famous Bible cities that are in there. Um, but uh, we take a team in there just to get a different perspective because the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a big issue today. Who owns the land? What? Who has the right to the land? And how, there's lots of terrorism and counter-terrorism going on and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it's a, it's a hotly contested area. And so the West Bank is worth pointing out. You'll see that quite a lot. And then the last one is a little tiny little strip of land that sits right on the border with Egypt in the against the Mediterranean. It's called the Gaza Strip. And it was very big in the 80s, still in the news occasionally from time to time with them trying to, the, with Hamas trying to send missiles out of there and send them to Tel Aviv and different places in Israel. It's a tiny little strip of land. It's the most densely populated place on the planet. And it's uh, completely landlocked, sea-locked. People can't get in and people can't get out. Only certain people with special licenses, uh, like Red Cross, um, people who are going in for emergency health care, some reporters, they can get special access through it, but it's completely under embargo. You can't, uh, there's, there's protection. The Israeli government have blockaded 
in and, in and out. The Egyptians have blocked it, blockaded their border with it, and they've also actually got a sea embargo in place as well, so that you can't cross a shipping line and get there via the Mediterranean. So it's quite a horrific place to be living. There's a lot of terrorism there, people trying to tunnel out, um, and on the other side of it is that there are probably some pretty significant human rights issues happening in the other way. There are a lot of innocent people who are trapped inside there who um, I believe as Christians we we should uh, be aware of. And so it was just a sort of a segue into how the, 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 the details of the scriptures are still playing out in the world today. All right, we're going to move on to look at the rest of the sons of Abraham, Abraham's sons. Abraham had two sons. Abraham had two sons. Uh, Their names were Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the older of the two, and Isaac was the one that God had promised. So Isaac was Sarah's son. Abraham was married to Sarah, his uh, half-sister. That's another story for another time, but that was quite a cultural common thing at the time. And God had promised that through Sarah that uh, Abraham would have a promised son. When, When God gave Abraham that promise in Genesis chapter 12 that he would be a great nation and all the nations would be blessed through his descendants. He didn't even have any children. He was completely um, completely childless. Sarah was barren. And so as a result of that, they had this promise from God. And so Abraham and Sarah tried to take matters into their own hands. And so Abraham had a child through one of Sarah's maidservants. Her name was Hagar. And through her, uh, they had a son called Ishmael. And so he was the older of the two sons. And then it was actually Isaac that came later, supernaturally. Isaac, uh, Abraham was 100, it says, and Isaac was, and uh, Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born. But the, the child of the promise was Isaac. Isaac then had two sons of his own, twin sons. Their names were Esau and Jacob. Esau was the firstborn by a few minutes, presumably. Jacob, whose later, later, his name was later changed to Israel. Uh, was the one through the promise. So this whole theme of God choosing the out-of-the-box one. Normally, it would be the firstborn that would inherit, but God chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau to show that he he likes to mess up the plan of human patriarchy quite a bit. And so Esau um, became, he changed his name to Edom, and he became the descendants of the Edomites. And often in Scripture, you'll see references to Edom as it'll say things like, your brother Edom or your sister Edom, and that's because they were deeply related. Uh, um, Jacob and Israel were as close. And the Edomites lived on the um, what is modern-day Jordan. They lived on the west, the east bank of the Jordan River, immediately across from Israel. There was a lot of uh, crossing to and fro between them. And then Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons, the second youngest, Joseph, he uh, was the one who was taken and sold as a slave, went into Egypt. And ultimately, the latter chapters of the book of Genesis are all about Joseph in Egypt and the plagues and uh, God using Joseph to rescue uh, um, rescue the Israelites. In fact, rescue the whole world from the plagues, the whole area, and um, bringing ultimately the Israelites moved down out of Israel, down south into Egypt. They lived on the floodplain of the, of the river. Um, of the Nile River, right on the floodplain, that's the most fertile area, and that's where they lived. That's where they were building the, uh, the temples, when the, the the pyramids and all those things when they were enslaved there. It says, and uh, that's where God delivered them from, and ultimately took them back north again. So the next slide I want to look at is the patriarchal family tree, and you don't need to remember this, but uh, when you're reading the Book of Genesis, it's happy to grab one of these, open this up, have a screenshot of it on your phone, and follow along. It can be helpful. So Abraham's father, Abraham's father was Terah, 
And uh, Terra uh, also had, presumably through uh, another wife other than Abraham's mum, had Sarai. So Abraham and Sarai were half brother and sister, not step. I think I said step before. They were half brother and sister. They were married. And Abraham had um, two sons. This is just me looking at what I've just described here. But this is helpful because it'll help you with the book of Genesis. Abraham had, uh, had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, we've already talked about. Abraham's brother, he had two brothers, Nahor who uh, and, and Haran. And um, it was the, these were related to Abraham, and we see both these relative families coming up in the story of Genesis. And so there's lots of arrows on the diagram I have here going all over the place, and I realize it's going to be hard to follow along um, as you're just listening to this. So Abram has his brother, two brothers, Nahor and Haran. Um, Nahor has a son called Bethuel, and Bethuel has a daughter called Rebecca. So Rebecca marries Isaac. So Isaac is actually, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, it's always confusing here. Isaac uh, is married to Rebecca. Rebecca is his cousin's daughter. Isaac's cousin's daughter is who he marries, uh, which is very common. It seems strange to us, but it was very common to have these family relationships, keeping marriages within the tribe. It was very much a cultural thing uh, at this time. Abram also, through uh, his, his, has a nephew called Lot who comes through his other brother Haran, and Lot's the, the guy we hear about in the story who comes with Abraham and settles with him in Canaan. And so there is family connection there. So the big connections at that level, Isaac marries Rebekah, Abraham's nephew Lot comes with them. If we drop down another generation, we come to Isaac's children, and we've already talked about Isaac's two sons, Esau and Jacob. So now we're going to look at Jacob. Jacob flees from uh, J- from his brother. Finally, obviously, over stealing the birthright, he wasn't very happy to be at home. He was running for his life. And so he flees to his uncle Laban's house, which is really the same town that his grandfather, uh, Abraham, originally came from up in the north um, of uh, in, in what is modern-day Syria. And when he gets there, he, he spends 20 years there. And during that time, he goes with nothing and he comes back with flocks and herds and wives and children. And while he's there, he marries two of uh, the two daughters that Laban has. The two daughters are Leah and Rachel. And through Leah and Rachel and their um, their maidservants, Zilpah and Bilhah, that he actually has, the Bible records that he has uh, 12 sons and one daughter. And so those 12 sons are, uh, we're going to look at them on the next slide. Joseph's the most important right for this point. He's the one who delivers them in Egypt. Um, but they become the, the 12 tribes of Israel. So let's look at the tribes of Israel now. So you can see here on the slide, if you're watching, uh, Jacob, as I said, had Leah and he had Leah's uh, servant Bilhah and he had Rachel and Rachel's servant uh, Zilpah, I think that's how it works. It might even be the other way around. Bilhah might have been Rachel's servant and Zilpah might have been Leah's servant. I think it probably was, actually. Um, but through this origin story, we have to park our discomfort with the story to some degree and realize that this is an origin story. This is a, a, it's not, not making a moral claim to what's right or wrong. In fact, I think you can look at these stories to realize that the whole concept of, of uh, polygamy and multiple marriages, even though the it's, the text doesn't 
outrightly say it's wrong, the story and the effect and the infighting and the family drama shows that there's definitely it's definitely not a healthy way to live. So it's God's kind of allowing the culture to be where it's at, but also kind of demonstrating it through the way the story is told. So Jacob has uh, as twelve sons: Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishkar, Zebulun. Uh, he also has a daughter there, uh, Dinah. Through Bilhar, he has Dan and Naphtali. Through Zilpari, he has Gad and Asher. And through Rachel, he has Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph then has two of his own sons while he's in the land of Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they actually become uh, two of the tribes of Israel, even though they are actually Jacob's descendants, or Jacob's grandchildren, not uh, Jacob's children. And so, in effect, there are 13 tribes. Uh, because there, Joseph actually is split in two, Ephraim and Manasseh. There's no tribe of Joseph per se. It's actually two tribes, the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. But whenever they're listed, there's usually only ever 12 listed. They usually leave one of them out. And there is, there's actually a reason why they leave one of them out as you read it. You'll you'll often dig in and you'll begin to see it. So anytime you see the list of tribes, and often they're in different orders too. And that tells us something. So you can skip over it, sure. But there is actually lessons to be learned in looking at the reasons why the tribes are listed in a certain way. But the three main tribes that it's worth noting is the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Judah, and then the the two tribes that come from Joseph. So it's four tribes we're, we're talking about, really. The tribe of Levi is the priestly tribe. That's the tribe that Aaron and all the high priests of Israel all the way down will, uh, will come from the tribe of Levi. Not in the time of Jesus, per se, uh, but up until the time of Jesus, there were another people group that usurped that throne around that time. But at that time, uh, the Levite, throughout the Old Testament, the Levites were the temple carers. They were the priests. They were the ones who looked after the temple, the tabernacle, and so on. Judah is the tribe through which King David came, and it was the royal tribe. So it became the tribe that led Israel in the time of David and Solomon. So David and Solomon were both from the tribe of Judah, and ultimately Jesus is the son of David. He is also called the lion of the tribe of Judah because he comes from that tribe. And then I want to mention Manasseh and Ephraim. They were Joseph's sons, and they had their own tribes as well. So uh, Ephraim, oftentimes Ephraim is used metaphorically to speak for all of Israel. I'm not actually sure why, but sometimes you'll see the term Ephraim and you think, is he talking about the whole tribe or the whole nation? And he's actually, the the scriptures are talking about Ephraim um, sort of metaphorically for the whole of the nation. So let's move into the Exodus Let's have a look now at the Exodus story. We're going to look at the life of Moses, the time in the desert, and the giving of the law. This happens in the uh, book of Exodus and throughout the period of the rest of the Pentateuch, which is uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the period of time that records this, uh, this desert wandering time following their exodus from slavery in Egypt. So we're going to look at uh, their story, the origin story of Israel. They had spent um, time in Egypt after they, after Joseph, uh, Pharaoh had asked them to come down when Joseph was there and had delivered uh, and provided for all the people and provided food for them and and he was the like the prime minister in Egypt and he invited his dad and his family to came came down and uh, 
they traditionally says they were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. That has been what we've always sort of roll off the cuff. However, many years ago, I started to question that and I started to think, how does that work? And I won't go into it now. You can Google it or you can ask me in a different context. But that's actually um, just a simple base reading. If we if we were to read the time frames of the scripture, it doesn't add up. It can't possibly be 400 years. In fact, um, I have worked it out as best as I can. And what I can say is that they actually lived in Israel for 250, so they lived in, in Egypt for, um, sorry, they lived in Israel prior to this for 215 years. So the 400 years in an essence actually began, uh, the 400 years of, of slavery, if you like, is a metaphorical way of saying it began when um, Abraham's son Isaac was actually persecuted by his, his uh, half-brother Ishmael, who was, uh, a, was an Egyptian because his mother Hagar was an Egyptian. So that fits the context that this, the 400 years of persecution actually began way back before, before then. Another scripture you'll find in the New Testament is it says that the law was given 430 years after the promise was given to Abraham. Well, if Abraham was given a promise, uh, there's no way that the law could be given 430 years later if there's 400 years of slavery uh, in Egypt because there's 215 years with Abraham and Isaac and much of Jacob's life being lived in Canaan, in the land of Israel, before they even go down to Egypt. So the end result is, just for the sake of it, just an interesting little tidbit, they were actually enslaved somewhere between 80 years and 144 years. We don't exactly know how long, but that's that's how it would fit the timeline that the New Testament and the Old Testament put together. Uh, but it doesn't ultimately affect the fact that they were an enslaved people who needed to be delivered and uh, God was going to do that. And so they had been in slavery and um, they were uh, making the pyramids. They were, they were basically slave laborers for, for the cities, making, building the cities and the temples of the Egyptians. And uh, along comes Moses, the story of Moses, and he becomes a prince. He's a, he's a Jewish boy. He's a, he's a Hebrew boy, a descendant of the Hebrew slaves. And through supernatural protection, he ends up as, uh, as the, foster, the fostered or the adopted son of the princess of Egypt. And ultimately, that makes him a prince of Egypt. And so he spends the first 40 years of his life um, growing up in the ways of Egypt, in the palace of Egypt, it would seem, um, probably a prince, probably among the royal household. And then he uh, goes out one day to check on how the Egyptians and the Israelites are getting along. And he protects um, an, an Israelite from an Egyptian who is uh, is. Uh, trying to punish him, he kills the Egyptian. Someone sees it. The next day, he goes back and he sees two Egypt, two Israelites fighting with each other, and he he tries to intervene in that one too. And uh, they basically call him out on that, and they say, "We know what you've done," and that causes Moses to flee in fear. So this guy who's been a prince of Egypt flees out into the desert, and he now spends the next forty years of his life in complete exile in the desert, which is sort of up in the Midianite country, up in the uh, Sinai Peninsula and in, in the barren lands. And he ends up being a shepherd in the in that area. He marries um, a wife, Zipporah, and spends 40 years, supposedly, presumably, he thinks he's spending the rest of his life there until he encounters, one day he's out on, on Mount Sinai looking after the sheep and he gets this call. He sees a bush 
uh, probably an acacia bush, which is a very common tree. Uh, not uncommon for them to be on fire, actually. Lightning strikes in the desert would often cause f- trees to be on fire. So it wasn't the tree on fire that was intriguing. It was the fact, he says, that the tree wasn't being burned up. There was a fire, a flame, and it wasn't burning up the tree. And so he goes, I'm going to go and check this out. And when he does, he meets the God of Israel. He meets Yahweh. Uh, Y-H-W-H. And in our English versions, most of our English versions will have the word Lord there um, in place of the original Hebrew, which has the four letters or the four Hebrew letters that have been translated into English as Y-H-W-H. I think the four Hebrew letters are Yah-Hey-Vah-Hey or something. Yah-Hey-Vah-Hey. Yeah, I think that's separate. That's right. Um, four consonants. And we translate it into English as Lord. And if you look in your Bible, you'll see that very often whenever it, Yahweh is being, or Y-H-W-H, the tetragrammaton, four letters, tetra four grammaton letters, whenever that you see the four letters being translated, they will translate it as Lord, all in capitals. Um, when you see just a capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, that's a different translation. That's translating the actual Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai. So it's not a, a, a proper noun, whereas Yahweh is supposed to be a proper noun. So the question is, why not Yahweh? Why do we translate it as Lord? Well, it comes from originally the, the Hebrews, at some point, they began to treat God's name with such respect that they stopped speaking the name. And Jews today will just say, blessed be the name sometimes. They'll just say the name, meaning, meaning the Lord. And so they stopped pronouncing his name. And by doing so, that somehow along the line, they removed the consonants. Well, they sorry, they removed the vowels. All the vowels weren't actually in the original text. But without the pronunciation, we didn't know what vowels to put in there. And so the question is, what vowels go between the Y, the H, the W, and the H? And, uh, and there's different schools of thought about what they should be. And the two main schools of thought that have come over time is, should it be Yahweh or should it be Jehovah? Now, the Jehovah translation, which um, obviously Jehovah's Witnesses get their name from, um, they're very big on using God's name as Jehovah. That is actually, I think there's probably pretty good scholarship to think that's probably not the way it was pronounced. That's more coming from inserting the vowels that were used in the Latin word for Adonai. And so when they, when the, they I think it's the Latin, when they translated the word Adonai, they inserted those vowels in there and they end up with Jehovah or Jehovah. Um, but I think that these days, the, the scholarly information seems to be that probably Yahweh is the best interpretation of the Lord's name. But we don't know for certain. And and you can have your own conjecture and your own beliefs about whether it's important to say Yahweh. You hear on this podcast, I'll often say Yahweh. I'm trying to train myself to say that a little bit more just rather than Lord, because Lord is something I've been saying for a long time and it kind of rolls off the tongue. But if I take my time to say Yahweh, it reminds me that this is a personal being who has a name and is deeply interested in me. And so uh, Yahweh reveals himself to Moses in this in this mountain experience. And he says, I want you to go back to Egypt and I'm going to use you to deliver my people from slavery. And so he heads back down with his brother Aaron. And then we have the story of the Passover on all the plagues that you can read about in the first few chapters of Exodus. And then the Exodus itself, which takes place in chapter 14. They leave Israel following the, they leave Egypt following the Passover and they have Exodus through the Red Sea through a supernatural miracle and into what they presumed was going to be straight into their promised land. It's about a 14 day journey from uh, where they were at the, the, dead, the Red Sea to the promised land. And instead of taking 14 days, I think it might have been 11 days actually, I think the scriptures say. Anyway, short trip. 
but they end up taking 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their own sinfulness, their own unwillingness to go in, their lack of trust in God. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, during this time, Moses uh, gets the law and the ceremonial commandments. The commandments and the ceremonial laws are given to them. And we see this in Exodus. We see this in Leviticus. We see little bits of it in Numbers. And then we see it again in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second law. Uh, and Deuteronomy takes place. It's a lot of repetition between uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But it takes place 40 years later. So Genesis. Uh, sorry. So Exodus and Leviticus are very early on in the 40-year reign, within the first year or two. And then Deuteronomy is right at the end before they are about to go into the promised land. And so they get these laws. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the laws come after salvation. They were saved prior to having the law. God saved them, not because they obeyed the law, but he saved them because of his promise. And I think that's important for us. We can fall back into thinking we're saved by law giving, law, law keeping. No, law keeping doesn't save us. That was not the purpose of the law for Israel. It's not the purpose for us either. That said, it doesn't mean we should dismiss law. Law was being put in place for these people to form them into a nation. They had been a, a people who, people group who had been enslaved, and now God was forming them into their own personal national identity, a nation underneath, uh, underneath God, underneath Yahweh. And so he wanted to give them certain laws by which they would live by which they would conduct themselves, some certain values by which they would live as a fruitful society. And if you compare these laws, which do seem quite archaic, we've talked about this numbers of times on the podcast, they do seem quite archaic compared to now, but compared to the laws of the parallel nations around about them, they're actually very progressive and very caring and uh, and relatively speaking, really show God's heart for the poor and the vulnerable and the outcast and the foreigner, people who most nations would just dismiss God elevates them in importance, and that is elevated and comes through in the Mosaic law. Okay, we're going to move on now to look at a diagram of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was like a mini temple. This was the place where God uh, dwelt among his people in the um, in the desert, when they were living in the desert. This later became the same model. You'll see the, tap, the temple is uh, an enlarged version of this. This is not very big. You can see on this diagram, or those that are listening to it, um, that you'll see that it's probably about a quarter of the size of American football field. So I'm guessing American football field is probably similar to a soccer field. So it's not, not a very big, basically one quarter of a soccer field is the size of this tabernacle. Not a massive facility by any stretch of the imagination, certainly not compared to what would later be the Temple Mount, which is still where the Dome of the Rock is today, which is um, the size of multiple football fields, much grander scale. Uh, now, we spent a lot of time in depth talking about the tabernacle. I remember talking about it with Jeannie, the different items in the tabernacle and how they refer to Jesus and so on. So I won't do a lot of that in this podcast. You can go and listen to uh, podcasts that, that include the Exodus passages. Uh, look through our show notes and you'll find those that deal with the passage. But I thought a visual explanation and a little virtual walkthrough is a good idea. Um, for those that are listening to this, if you want to pull up the notes on the PDF, you can. Or if you just Google, um, you know, an image, just say, give me an image of the tabernacle and Jewish tabernacle in the desert. You'll get a pretty good image of it. But uh, really, it's just a, a, a rectangular region that was separated out for God to dwell in it. And they would put a tent curtains around the outside of this region. And only the priests could go inside those tent curtains. Jews would come up to the entrance, or the Hebrews would come up to the entrance with their sacrifice, and they would uh, present their sacrifice to the priest who would take it inside 
the um, to the inside the, the tabernacle compound and would uh, sacrifice the animal and offer it on the altar, uh, which was right in front of them. It was the only thing the Jews would be able to see when they came up to the the entrance would be this uh, this tabernacle uh, would would be this this bronze altar where the sacrifices were being offered and the smoke was rising up all day from that altar. Uh, beyond the altar is a an, uh, what they call a, a brazen laver or a, um, a bronze sea. It was made of brass and it was a, um, a ritual place where the priests would wash. Obviously, this is a, a slaughter yard for want of a better term. And they would wash before they would go inside the most holy place. Sorry, the holy place, not the most holy place, to do their work. And so they would have to ritually cleanse themselves in this water, which speaks of washing um, and you'll see water used repeatedly throughout scripture to speak of washing and then inside the tabernacle toward the western side of it um, is another little room covered over it's actually two rooms it looks like one but it's actually two rooms inside un- covered over under a series of different um, types of cloth and uh, it would be completely dark in there if it were not for uh, a menorah a seven prong lampstand that existed so inside the tabernacle we have uh, inside the, the outer tabernacle. We have two items: the brazen altar and the and the water uh, altar made of the water sea pool washing thing that we have there. And then they would go inside the holy place. And inside there, there were three more items. As you had head in, the priest would walk in through. In, we're getting closer to Eden. The picture is Eden speak here. As you go inside, there were the 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 um, inside was covered with tapestries of of cherubim and fruit and the idea was you were going back into where God dwells back into the Garden of Eden and on the left hand side as they walked in would be a seven uh, seven standard uh, gold menorah it was always a light it was a, a candlestick that was always a light and this speaks of the light of Christ uh, John picks up on this in his gospel on the right hand side was a table of showbread and the priest would go in there and replace the bread every week and there were 12 lots of bread there to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel and the light would be shining on to the bread all the time as a picture of God's light always shining on his people. And then uh, towards the back of this little place called the holy place in this little room was another uh, altar. This one was an incense altar, much, much smaller. They weren't sacrificing animals on this one. It was just a little gold altar and they um, they were burning incense on it all the time before the Lord. And incense speaks of our prayers going up before the Lord. Then there was a big curtain and only one person, only the high priest could go behind that curtain and only once a day on the uh, on the day of atonement, the day of Yom Kippur. And uh, they would go behind that and in behind that were uh, was the Ark of the Covenant, which was uh, a box that carried the uh, Ten Commandments. It carried... Um, uh, um, a rod of Aaron's, that an almond rod, a branch of Aaron's that had budded, and uh, it carried some manna inside this box, this ark. And then the bottom, the lid of the box was was uh, a mercy seat that was carved out of gold. There were cherubim on it, and that was the place where God would dwell. He literally, it says, he came down and, and his glory went from uh, Mount Sinai on the mountain and actually came and dwelt in the middle of this tabernacle. And so this became the pattern for worship for all of Israel's history. Um, not so much, until, should we say, until 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and uh, Jews today don't use this pattern. They don't sacrifice animals. They have a different pattern of worship these days because they had no temple. Once the temple was destroyed, 
point in 70 AD, it made it very hard to do any kind of uh, worship practice and they had to reinvent themselves. So by the time of Jesus even, there's already a reinvention with synagogues, people living all over the place and going, you can go to the temple every Saturday, it was too far, but they would go to synagogues and they would go to the temple probably once or twice a year up to the temple, which was always a, a big event. So that is an overview of the tabernacle that was built when they were in the desert. I won't go into more depth on that, but you'll, there's a lot, of, a lot of chapters about the tabernacle. Best way, if you, get, if you want to read those chapters, um, and you want to persevere with reading them because they can be very boring to read if you're trying to picture it in your mind, a bit like you're trying to listen to me explain this now. Just simply Google, get an image, and watch some YouTube videos. There's some good YouTube videos that actually um, have the narration of the text and they have them designed like a computer game. You can actually get a picture of what the tabernacle looked like. It's a good way to get familiar with it. And once you get a basic understanding of it, then anytime you read those scriptures in the future, they'll make a bit more sense to you. So it's worth doing. Okay, before we move on to a whole different chapter, not a whole different signpost, I want to talk about one more thing. You'll find this in Numbers chapter 2. And I've titled this The Cross in the Desert. And in amongst this completely seemingly boring list of um, names of tribes and how many people were in each tribe and where they lived, whether they were camping on the the north side or the east side or the south side or the west side, it all looks just like a, a mumble jumble name. Now, what I've done is done a little diagram for you just to show how it actually... If you take the scripture literally and you use the numbers, what you actually find is that the way that the tribes were camped, north, south, east, and west, uh, actually looks like it comes up like a shape of a cross. Now, I don't know if that was God's intention uh, prophetically, but uh, it's a good chance it might have been. God has a sense of humor. But if Moses was right up on the top of Mount Sinai looking down on the camp, it's very likely that from way up the top of the mountain, he would have seen what looked like the shape of a cross. Did he know anything with that? I don't know. But there was the camp was a cross in the desert. So I can't really do any more than just encourage you to have a look at the diagram that I've provided in the notes, and you'll be able to see that uh, if you take the camp numbers and match them accordingly, you'll come out with something that looks like the shape of a cross. All right, so we are going to move on now to the period following that 40 years in the desert, the period where they take the promised land. the period of Joshua and Judges, the taking of the promised land. I've got some more maps coming up in this session, a bit of geography, a bit of history coming through, but it's quite important because this was the forming of the nation into their actual land. This was the, the fulfillment of the promise that God had given Abraham, which was that I would give you this land upon which you find yourself. And it was Joshua and uh, that ultimately led the campaigns to, to take this land. And then uh, it was settled in the period of the judges ahead of the period of the kings, which will be the next section that we will look at. So the story of Joshua is the immediate book following on from the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the, Deuter the, the um, Pentateuch is another version for it, the first five books of the Bible. Then we have Joshua and the taking of the promised land. And so there's a story of Joshua, Caleb, and the spies. Uh, early on in their period in their campaign, went before the 40 years, very early early days of their time in the wilderness, uh, Moses sent Joshua, Caleb, and 10 other spies up to the promised land to check it out. 10 of those guys came back whinging and complaining, saying there's no hope. Joshua and Caleb said, come on, let's go. God's given it to us. 
Well, the end result was that people doubted the promise of God, and so they spent 40 years wandering in the desert. So so much so that the only two dudes the scriptures tell us that were still alive at the time of the taking 40 years later was, surprise, surprise, Joshua and Caleb, the two who had faith. And so Joshua succeeded Moses. Moses died in the desert just, just across from the promised land, and Joshua succeeded him as the leader, and he led a seven-year battle campaign for the promised land. Uh, look, I'm not going to get into, we talk about in our podcast, I'm not going to get into the morality of the battles and all that sort of stuff. That's a whole different uh, conversation, very valid conversation. This is just about giving us an overview of the story. So they have a seven-year uh, campaign to take the promised land, and they don't accomplish it. They do accomplish parts of it, but they don't completely take all the land. There's still plenty of people living from those other tribes, and some of them they enslaved, some of them they ran up into the hills, some they lived in the hills and they couldn't get to the... The, the stronger people, so there was a, became a, um, a sense in which the, the tribe, the nation of Israel, was while they had the land, they were also foreigners living in the land. There were still people who who couldn't be driven out. You find this, I think, Judges chapter two talks about that. So Joshua uh, leads the people for um, many years, and at the end of his life, he, uh, he gives a charge to the people, and it's a famous. Uh, Prophets, a famous statement, you often see it on people's walls in their house, judge for yourselves whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so Joshua does that. He charges the people to follow, to obey God, and they say, yes, we'll obey, and God says, and Moses, uh, Joshua says, no, you won't, you're not able to. And they go, yes, we will, and then it doesn't take very long, and they fail to obey. But during this time, uh, Joshua uh, does move them and settle them in the land, and he divides up the land among the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's going to be our next slide, the actual breakdown of the land. Now, once again, if you're listening, get yourself a map and have a look. Uh, these stories are really hard to read without having a map in front of you because it's very hard to picture them. In fact, I don't even remember where most of these tribes are. I'll, I'll number a few, I'll mention a few that I do know. You'll often hear and mention in scripture Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They are actually two and a half tribes who never actually settled on the western side of the, of, uh, the Jordan River. They settled on the eastern side. They actually inhabited their land during the 40 years that they were in the desert. These were people groups that the, the Hebrews actually defeated prior to actually taking the promised land. All their promised land was actually supposed to be over on the western side of the Jordan River, but they um, they were living on this side. They came out of Egypt and they went around the Dead Sea and up into what is modern-day Jordan on the west side, on the east side, and they lived there, conquered that land. Two and a half tribes settled on that land, and then the rest of them uh, moved over and settled in their land on the other side. Now, you don't need to know very much about where these tribes are other than to recognize that Judah is in the south. Uh, and a little bit later on when we talk about the divided kingdom, you'll see why Judah, because it became its own nation, separate from the rest of the tribes pretty much. And it was in the south. All the other nations are all up in the north, lots of them up around uh, the Sea of Galilee. Hence, uh, it's the prophecy says, but uh, you, you know, those in the land of Naphtali, where Jesus uh, talks about Jesus doing his ministry right up in the north, land of Zebulun. They're all prophecies about Jesus way up in the north. So you don't really need to know, other than to know that they settled their tribes throughout the land. Um, I think it's probably enough to know for now on the on that perspective. Uh, my next slide I'm going to show you is actually a, um, 
a topographical view. Topographical view, I think that's the word, where, where, where you can see mountain ranges. And um, I'm gonna try my best to explain this to you guys who are listening as well, but a map is useful. So the particular map I'm looking at, um, we're gonna take a cross section of the land of Israel. Imagine if you're down south and you're looking straight north, then uh, what you would see is what I'm about to describe to you. We're gonna, we're gonna go from left to right. So if you were way down south looking up at Israel, on the left, far left side is the Mediterranean Sea because that's the left hand, the, the western border. So we're gonna be describing, what I'm describing to you is from west to east. And on the, um, on the western border is what they call the Sharon Plain or the coastal plains. And the Philistines lived in this area. It's a, it's a, it's a, a plain that is about five to 15 kilometers wide at its widest. Uh, and it's just literally right on the Mediterranean coastline. It's the lowlands out onto the Mediterranean Ocean. Uh, the Jews didn't really, the Hebrews didn't really live there that much. There wasn't a lot of water there, so they tended not to live there. The Philistines lived down in the south. So that's the first thing you would see, a flat plain about five, say 10 kilometers wide. And then you would start, you're going from west to east. If you were looking at it from down south, you'd actually see that the topography would start to rise and they would head up into a series of hills. Um, through the Shephala, which is the lowlands, up through the hill country. Uh, you'll often hear it called the hill country of Ephraim or the hill country um, of uh, other, other tribes. And there's a band of mountains that heads uh, from the north to the south. Uh, that Jerusalem is right at the top of those mountains. It's quite cold in Jerusalem in the winter. It's quite high up. It's very hot in the summer, but it's quite cold in the winter. It actually snows in Jerusalem. It's, it's quite a high area. And so there's a band heading from north to south. And then it uh, descends very quickly back down as you head east. It, it descends very quickly down into the Jordan River Valley or the Rift Valley that the Jordan River is in, which uh, the Jordan River starts at the Sea of Galilee. Well, actually starts north of the Sea of Galilee, but it flows into the Sea of Galilee, freshwater in the Sea of Galilee. Then it flows uh, many, many kilometers south directly towards you if you're looking from down south and ends in the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on the planet, uh, some 600 meters below sea level. Even the Sea of Galilee is actually about 60 meters below sea level. But the Dead Sea, lowest place on the planet, nothing lives there, water can't get escape, and that's why it's very salty. Uh, nothing's able to live there. But it's good to know because there's all kinds of prophecies about the Dead Sea that come out um, in scripture. So it's a, it's a useful one to, un to understand. And so after you continue your journey towards the east, you come out of the Rift Valley, head back up into a new set of hills, which are called the Transjordanian Mountains. These are in modern day Jordan. And then from there, it pretty much doesn't go back down again. It just stays up and heads out into the Arabian Desert for hundreds or oh, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers as you head into this the Arabian desert and ultimately to Saudi Arabia so that is looking from um, from south uh, looking from the south looking uh, going from west to east now um, I'm going to just show a couple of other points on the map that are of use we're going to turn and change our perspective now so we're looking from uh, kind of from above looking down on Israel. I'm going to start right up in the north of Israel and you will see Mount Hermon, which is the foothills of the Lebanese mountains. It's the highest point in Israel. It's about 3,000 meters, I think, above sea level. I think uh, Mount Kosciuszko is 
2,200 or something. So um, it's very high up. And um, the water's there, the headwater's there. Uh, well, the water comes through springs there off the mountains and becomes the the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee flows into that. So that is the headwaters of uh, the, Jordan, uh, the Jordan River, highest place. And so it's a place that is even referred to as refreshing um, in the sense, I think Psalm 133 says that how blessed it is when the brethren, brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like dew falling on Mount Hermon. Well, because they know the dew will ultimately run down and become part of the life force. I mean, the Jordan River is what gives uh, what, what pretty much gives most of the water supply to all the fertile areas in Israel in that time and even still today. So the river runs south from, uh, as I said, from Mount Hermon into the Sea of Galilee. It continues south into the Dead Sea. So that is the river running through the Rift Valley. There is one other valley that's worth noting here, and that is the Jezreel Valley. And that comes up a lot in the Bible. So I wanted to take a moment to just tell you about that and where that is. It actually runs across the mountain range that um, heads heads right down from the north. I mentioned that there's a there's a, a mountain range, central mountain range, uh, that Jerusalem is on, and it runs from north to south. Well, it does except for this Jezreel Valley, which runs west to east west across this um, across this mountain range, and ultimately joins up near near Galilee somewhere. There's lots of things take place there. The capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel was there, so you'll often see the Jezreel Valley mentioned. Now, on the map, I'm looking at there are all kinds of other places that I'm not going to mention that come up in scripture, but just get into the habit of uh, taking the time when you listen to a story to just pull up a map, get yourself a good Bible map and use that uh, you can get my bible map books or you can just google it and get an image just a useful tool to have when you're wanting to study the bible and get a bit more context it might seem tedious at first but if you take the time to familiarize yourself you'd be so amazingly encouraged by how quickly you'll learn this and how much more it will bring the scripture to life for you once that once you do that all right we are going to continue with our story beyond um beyond the the map and we're going to look at the period of the judges so after joshua died they were they go into a 330 year very tumultuous period and this you'll find this in the book of judges and is referenced in um, elsewhere as well but it's 330 years and there's seven recurring cycles of rebellion enslavement, repentance, deliverance. The people rebel against God. They end up because they made poor choices. They end up at the whim of a foreign power. They then repent and turn to God and God delivers them. And you think things are going great. And then the cycle repeats seven times. Interesting, seven times. That should tell us that this is, this is a picture. This, the writers have tried to tell you this is a picture of complete depravity. This is what happens when humans try to do it their own way. There's a common refrain um, in this book that appears multiple times as well that says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It appears in Judges 17, 18, 19, and 21. Four times it mentions, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Friends, anytime we do that, when the absence of any kind of uh, moral standard, this sense of abject truth, and I'll do my thing, that's all Garden of Eden language. That's all defining what's right for me. The problem is when we tend to say what's right for us, it's nearly always at the expense of what's wrong, right for other people. God's way is different. He has a, a law in place, but that law is about the law of love. That's about us actually putting other people before ourselves. That's about deferring to others. That's about preferring others over ourselves rather than us fighting for our rights. Even if, we're, even if we are right, 
We shouldn't be fighting for our rights. We should be living by a different standard like Jesus and taking up our cross and following him. So the Judges period, quite a violent, turbulent book, um, but it's a picture of depravity. It's actually a picture of, um, once again, like Genesis 3 to 11, depravity as humans humans get worse and worse over time. The Judges story gets like that. It starts okay, but it just gets worse and worse and worse to the time you get to the end of the book and you've got people chopping up their dead concubines and horrible, horrible things happening in that story. And that's supposed to tell you, once again, this picture of human depravity. And yet God wasn't finished. God was still working his plan, even amongst his uh, messed up, screwed up people that they are and that we are. I'm so grateful God continues his plan. So very following on from Judges, immediately after the book of Judges, is this beautiful little four-chapter book called The Book of Ruth. Great little story. And it's it's God's redemption. It's showing that God is still working. Because this book is written during the time of the judges. It actually starts with, in the years when the judges reigned. That's how it begins. So it puts it in its historical context. A time when there's a lot of mess and there's a lot of selfish living. God is still working and he's working through this woman, Ruth, who's not even a Jew. She's a Moabite. She's from a, a neighboring country. And it's four short chapters that link together the judges period with what we're going to call the um, the kingdom period, if you like. I think I've written in my notes, they link the patriarchal period with the kingdom period. I think it's probably better, fairer to say they link the judges period with the kingdom period that's going to come afterwards. It's an easy one read setting. You can sitting read, you can do it in a few minutes. It's a great story of redemption, as I've said, and it's also a prophetic pattern of Christ. Um, it, it prophesies about this kinsman redeemer, this one who would come and buy back the mess that Ruth found herself in, that Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, found herself in. It's, it's a picture of redemption, a picture of Christ as our kinsman redeemer. And uh, it ends with this very important little family tree at the last few verses, last five verses or so of uh, Ruth chapter four. And this tree says, it basically links um, the the time of the king it links king david back to the person of judah it says judah was the father of perez perez the father of ram ram the father of aminadab aminadab the father of nashon nashon the father of salmon salmon the father of boaz boaz the father of obed obed the father of jesse and jesse the father of king david and yes i did do that from memory don't ask me why i know that but i do so i didn't have that in front of me but that is a direct link to uh that links david back to judah to show that he is from the promised tribe you see at the end of book of judah at the book end of book of genesis um jacob was pronouncing blessings prophetic blessings over each of his sons. And he prophesied over Judah, um, a royalty. He said, the, the ruler's staff, the scepter will not depart from you, um, which is a prophetic declaration that, that Ju- the tribe of Judah would have royalty in their blood. And that was why the, and this little book of Ruth exists to kind of link those two together. All right, we're going to move on now to the time of the United Kingdom, not the United Kingdom of Great Britain, the United Kingdom of Israel. Okay, we have three kings that uh, ruled during this time of the United Kingdom. This was the most affluent time for uh, for the time of Israel, certainly under David and especially under Solomon was a time when the kingdom was at its most influential. Um, but then it uh, degenerated pretty quickly. 
by the time uh, Solomon's son is on the throne. And so we will look at a bit of history to put this in perspective, this period of the United Kingdom. Remember before this, we've got the Israelites living in their promised land, but still uh, having other nations and people groups around about this living for themselves. They don't have a king. They don't have any structure or order. They're trying to do whatever's right for themselves. It's a pretty messed up picture. And into that, we read the story, the books of 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles all come through in this period of the kingdom. So the last judge, even though he's not called that, the last judge is actually Samuel. He is a priest and he is serving as as priest and as judge, leader of Israel um, during the time of the judges. And the people say, we don't want judge anymore. We want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. All the other nations have got kings. Why can't we have one too? And so they say, we want to have a king to rule over us. And you'll find uh, you'll find the story of Saul, who was the first king. You'll find that in the book of 1 Samuel. In fact, all of 1 Samuel really is about King Saul, and it overlays with his time where he has King David, or who David is not a king yet, but overlays with David as one of his um, prime, originally friends, and then becomes uh, his enemy. Saul becomes jealous of him. But you'll find Saul's story in 1 Samuel. It's a story, uh, a sad story, a, a story that really is a great character study in what not to do. It's a story of uh, the damage that can be done through insecurity and disobedience. And in the end, that cost him the kingdom. He was deeply, deeply insecure, this guy. And initially, that security plays out just simply in him being afraid to take the throne. Sometimes when we are insecure, it, it plays out in us kind of treating ourselves like a small fish in big ponds where we think, oh, we're a nobody. And you'll see that early on in Saul's life. Who am I? What am I that I should be the king? And he's deeply insecure. And then later on, he's still insecure, but it flips. And instead of becoming a, a, a small fish in a big pond, he turns around and he treats everyone like he's the big fish in the small pond. And he uses his insecurity in, in a controlling way and in in an abusing way, but it's still a bullying way, but it still comes from the same issue. It comes from the issue of insecurity. And it's such a hard taskmaster. One of the most important things that we can learn to deal with in our life is getting our insecurity under check, getting confident with who we are in God, being willing to acknowledge that we are frail, that we make mistakes, but that God is still working with us. And I am who he says I am. I don't have to prove myself to anybody, either by um, shying away or by overstretching and, and overperforming. And that was the story of King Saul. He started well and did not finish well. Following on from Saul, we have King David who takes the throne next. And King David was the Lord's choice for a king. His story begins in 1 Samuel 16 with the story of David and Goliath, a famous story, and goes right through to the end of 2 Samuel. And it's also in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse, uh, chapter 10 through chapter 29. Uh, David is a man after God's own heart. That's how the scriptures describe him. He had a heart for God. wasn't perfect, did make mistakes. Um, but he had a heart for God in the middle of it all. He um, did a lot of good things. He defeated and subdued the neighboring nations. So some of those nations that were around about, he was able to bring a degree of peace by uh, by defeating them. He was the great psalmist of Israel. Many, many of the psalms were written by David. Many others were probably written after the order of David in the, in the style and the genre of David, but he was a great psalmist. He conquered the city of Jebus, and renamed it as Jerusalem. That became his capital. He decided he would um, he would move his capital, and he would ultimately wanted to put the the temple there, God's presence there, 
And so that's uh, how Jerusalem, the city that's still there today in the same place. In fact, you can go to the city of David today. Uh, it's an archaeological dig in just under the Temple Mount. Fascinating to go there and see where actually the ruins of where King David lived um, in about 10, 1000 BC. So, you know, you know, 3000 year old history right there. You can see it. So David did that, renamed the city Jerusalem. And then, of course, we have the Bathsheba story, the famous story of the sin, the consequence, and the redemption. David uh, should have been at war, should have been leading his troops. He became complacent. He stayed at home. He fell for a woman called Bathsheba. Ultimately, he took her and had a uh, had a son by had multiple sons, two sons by him, by her. Uh, the first son died. The second one became Solomon, who would ascend the throne. I mentioned it even in that language there. I mentioned a while, while ago earlier in this episode, the language of Eve, that she saw something, she wanted it, and she took it. And you'll actually see that language in the story of Bathsheba. David saw her bathing. He wanted her and he took her. And really, you know, we can't really blame Bathsheba one way or another. She had no say in the matter in this patriarchal society. When the king calls you, you go. And so um, so she did. And so I'm not saying she's perfectly innocent in the whole matter either, but it led to a downward spiral where David was pretty messed up. In fact, ultimately, there were consequences for his sin. And it's worth noting this because this teaches us something about sin. Sometimes we sit, we have what we call soppy grace in Christianity, which kind of says, well, look, God will forgive me so I can sin and get over it. God can forgive, yes, but that does not exempt us from the consequences of our sin. So when David sinned with Bathsheba, uh, Nathan the prophet came to him and he repented. He said, oh, I'm, I've done the wrong thing. I've sinned. And Nathan said to him, yes, the Lord has forgiven you and he's taken away your sin. But nevertheless, because you have sinned, there will be consequences. There will be issues and strife in your family that will come as a result of this. And it did. There was lots of his, many of his sons were at each other's throats. There was all kinds of sibling rivalry that took place. And it, it was a consequence of this issue that David did when he sinned with Bathsheba. So never for a moment think, friends, that our sin does not make, uh, won't hurt anybody. It not only hurts us, it can actually have lasting effects upon others, our family, those that we care for, those that we lead, and those that we influence. God is forgiving, yes, but that should not be an excuse for continuing to live in sin. All right, let's move on to the Psalms part of, I've put the Psalms into this uh, United Kingdom section, mainly because so many of the Psalms were actually written by David. So what are the Psalms? Well, they're a collection of songs and prayers throughout Israel's history. About half of them were written by David. There are some other contributors, Asaph, the songs of Asaph and the the songs of the sons of Korah, most notably. And then there are 16 Psalms in there that speak of the Messiah. And there are um, Psalms that we've talked about in the podcast, the songs of ascent, which were a group of about 15 Psalms that were put together that the Israelites would read and sing, sorry, they would sing as they made their way up to the temple to worship God. So they're the the groupings. Now, these Psalms were put together in their final package um, in the period of time called the intertestamental period, the period between the Old Testament and the New New Testament. In fact, most of the Old Testament was finally put together in its final pattern in that period of time as well. Uh, They they collected writings and you'll often see annotations and you'll see things that don't seem to make sense, talking about Moses dying and then Moses dies and then you think, well, hang on a sec, how come Moses is still speaking? Because he's supposed to have written the Torah and you realize, oh, someone's added stuff in later. In fact, you can see that in the in the text as well. Even in the actual 
ancient text, you can see where they've annotated things and added things in and written things in the margin. And we have a belief that that's normal. That's actually part of how God was working. He was he was orchestrating this, all these different stories, putting them together to form his story, the story of his son, Jesus. And so the Psalms were collected, probably sung throughout this time, but they were collected in their final format many years after King David um, had actually died, even though so many of the Psalms were his and were performed during his lifetime. So now we're going to move on to the third one of these United Kingdom's uh, kings, Solomon, who was David's son. So it was Solomon who built the temple in Jerusalem. It was the centerpiece of Jewish worship from that day to this. It still is, even though there's no temple there anymore. It's still regarded as the place, the closest place uh, that they worship. And I'll, I'll mention that in a minute. So Solomon built a temple, which is just an enlarged version of the tabernacle. And ultimately, it was a beautiful, it was covered in gold, it was very wealthy. Ultimately, it was destroyed um, when the Babylonians came and defeated um the Jews and took them into exile and then it was rebuilt in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and then it was um, expend, ex, extended further in the time of King Herod the Great who was uh, just prior to Jesus and during the time when Jesus was a young boy really it was extended and built to be a very large very large um, temple uh, there's no temple anymore. It was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, but there's a large block called the Temple Mount, and you'll see the famous Dome of the Rock up on top of that large concrete uh, slab, which was the, the mount that the temple used to be on. And today the Jews worship at the Wailing Wall, or the Western Wall, which is a, a part of that huge temple complex way down below. And they see that as the closest place they can get to that is as close to the temple as they could ever be. So that's why they worship there on that spot. They can't worship on top of the Temple Mount because that's under control of the Muslims or the Arabs as we speak. All right, so King Solomon built the first temple. He was a prolific writer of 3,000 proverbs, it says, and 1,005 songs. That's what the scriptures tell us. He was incredibly wise, and yet at the same time, he was foolish. So we read stories of his wisdom in making wise decisions, and yet at the same time as his wisdom, he um, he just was flat out disobedient. You see, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16 to 20, you'll see that, uh, that God, Moses actually tells the Israelites, when you go into the promised land and you have a king, there's a few things I want your king, this king to do. First thing I want you to do is you need to make sure that you don't marry too many foreign women. Do not marry foreign women because they will lead your heart astray, it says. That's not an attack on women. It's just saying if you if you um, marry these women, you're going to feel obligated to worship their gods, basically, to turn your back on God. And the other thing it says is that you must not ma- multiply to yourself horses and chariots. The Egyptians had lots of horses and chariots. The other nations did. You, you do not trust in chariots and horses for your victory. You have to trust in me. But it specifically says about Solomon two things. It says Solomon loved many foreign women and he built lots of, he made lots of chariots and had lots of horses. So he flat out disobeyed what Moses had said and, and uh, became reliant on his own strength and disobeyed God. And in the end, that's what led to his downfall. And so the downfall of Solomon was that at the end of his life, the kingdom of Israel, the United Kingdom of Israel, was split into a divided kingdom. So it went from United Kingdom to Divided Kingdom, the two nations of Israel and Judah, and that's where we're going to go next.
going to move on to the divided kingdom. This is the kingdom as it existed in the book of uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and probably 2 Chronicles would be where you'd find most of the references, and then prophets that took prophesied during this period of time as well. Um, so the best way, place to start with explaining the divided kingdom is a simple map. Now, the, the northern kingdom was all the way from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. That's often you'll hear the term Dan to Beersheba. It just means north to south. Think Darwin to Hobart. It's just the full extent of the land. But what happened when Solomon uh, died and he put his son on the throne? There was a civil war. There was a rebellion, basically, uh, because Solomon had um, not been kind to his people. Even though it looked like they had affluence and they their, their kingdom was at their largest during this time and it had vassal nations around about it that... Um, that paid homage to it. Undergirding all of that was a slave labor, a mistreatment of the poor, um, the elite controlling the, the poor, and God doesn't look too kindly on that, neither do the people themselves. They have the first chance they have to rebel, they do. And so there is a rebellion, we'll come to that in a moment, a rebellion um, by a man called Jeroboam. But the end result of that was that the tribe of the nation of Israel was split in two. The northern kingdom from then on became called the kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom became called the kingdom of Judah. And generally speaking, Judah is the better of the two, generally speaking, at least for most of it. Uh, but ultimately, Judah fails as well. Uh, so we'll come back to that. But I just wanted you to realize that the northern kingdom is Israel. So during the United Kingdom, the whole thing is called Israel. But after Solomon dies, anytime you see a reference to Israel, you're referring to the northern kingdom, not one of Solomon's descendants. Solomon's descendants ruled on the, the king ruled over the kingdom of Judah. Okay, so let's press on. The rebellion of Jeroboam. So this guy Jeroboam was one of Solomon's sort of elite soldiers, and he rebelled and ran away. And then when Solomon died, he came back and uh, he sort of launched a civil war and uh, launched a rebellion against them. And many, uh, all the northern tribes actually went with him. They actually went with him and said, no, we're going to start our own thing. We don't want to serve the king, uh, the king in Jerusalem anymore. We're going to set up our own kingdom. And so he did that. He, Jerob, Jeroboam, took tribes. Now, numbers of the people who were living in the northern kingdom who wanted to continue to serve um, the descendants of Solomon and David, they actually migrated south. And so the tribes, the people from the northern tribes came south and those who were basically not interested from the south, they went north. They went where they wanted to go, where they could get away with doing whatever they wanted to do. And so this northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, during the period of the kings, we see that there are 10 different dynasties. Like A dynasty is like a, a household, a family that uh, rules, you know, the sons and the next generation and so on ruling. So over this period of 200 years, there's 10 different dynasties in the Northern Kingdom. There's one or two half-decent kings amongst them and the rest were rebellious and they worshipped all kinds of pagan gods. Ultimately, they were attacked and assimilated by the Assyrians in 722 BC. Now, assimilated is one of the methods of how foreign empires, when they conquered, would come. Assimilation means they would basically try to encourage intermarriage so that you could be ethnically cleansed and everyone would be the same language and be of the same group. It's not 
act dissimilar to the mentality, sadly, of what some of the stolen generation in our nation here in Australia was about. Um, you know, this concept that somehow if we could assimilate, ultimately, um, you know, the, the white Australia policy and everything, it's it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And that's essentially what assimilation meant, that eventually, if you did it for long enough, you would be able to remove any kind of ethnic trace. Um, and in that case, they weren't so much worried about the um, the racial aspect of it. It was more their ethnic identity, their national identity that they wanted to get rid of. Because if people had a national identity, they were likely to rise up and, and rebel against the kingdom, the, the empire, so that they would remove that. So the Assyrians tried to assimilate them and uh, move them, uh, move people in and out and tried to basically get them all the same. The southern kingdom of Judah was unlike the northern kingdom, which had 20 dynasties, the southern kingdom had a single unbroken dynasty, the family of David. And this was to fulfill what God had said, that he would always give David a descendant to rule on his throne. And ultimately that continued all the way through to Jesus, who is the son of David who rules on the throne now. And so one single unbroken dynasty, there were several godly kings among these crew but there were also several wicked kings. It was a bit of a mixed bag, if you like. And they were attacked and defeated by the Babylonians in 586 BC due to their rebellion and sinfulness of its kings and its elite and its people. So it survived for, uh, was that another 130 years or something like that, following on after the Northern Kingdom was defeated. And then ultimately they were taken by the Babylonian Empire who had succeeded the Assyrians um, as the main empire in the region. And unlike being assimilated, they were actually just carried off as a single group and uh, taken into exile. And they continued to live as a unique people group, a Jewish people group with their own identity in Babylon. Ironically, Babylon was basically the same place Abraham started his journey from. It's the place where Babel was, the Tower of Babel. So it was like they went full circle. I talked about Noah being decreation story. This was a decreation story. They had turned their back. They had gone so far away from God that God decreated them back to where they started when Abraham was living in Ur of the Chaldeans. A full decreation story that shows us what happens when we live our own way. So let's look at the prophets to Israel. Uh, there is a group of handful of prophets that prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. There's also a handful of prophets that prophesied to the southern kingdom. So prophets to Israel, the most notable two, are Elijah and Elisha. They don't actually have their own books, unlike all the other prophets. These guys, um, their stories, their prophecies are contained within the narrative, the historical narrative of uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. 1 Kings is really mainly about Elijah, and 2 Kings is largely about Elisha, his his successor. So uh, Elijah was 870 to 850 AD. Elisha was 850 to 800 AD. We have Jonah, the famous Jonah and the fish story, Jonah and the whale story, um, which may or may not be allegorical. It does Once again, like I've been saying, it doesn't change the meaning of the story, whether it was allegorical or not. Um, don't be offended if you think it was or wasn't. I think the moral to the story is the same anyway. We haven't got time to talk about that moral, but we will in our podcast when we get to Jonah, no doubt. Um, we have Joel, who prophesied uh, from 790 to 760. Uh, he's the prophecy that uh, is picked up by Peter on the day of Pentecost. We have Amos, who prophesies from 780 to 760, and Hosea from 785 to 725. Hosea is a strange story where he has to act out prophecy by uh, marrying Goma, who's a prostitute, and having kids by her. And it's all there's a lot of prophetic acting taking place in these prophecies. And ultimately, these prophets are they, they are. 
are trying to hold the people, the kings, the rulers to account. If you want to know what the main job of the prophets are, it's not to prophesy future. We think of prophecy as speaking predominantly about the future. That's not the main reason. There is a bit of that, but that's not the main reason. The main reason prophets in the Old Testament exist was to, they were like the the law police, basically. They were there to say, hey, you guys are supposed to care. And for the foreigner and the poor and the widow and the orphan, you're supposed to look out for the vulnerable and you're using them and abusing them. So they were constantly calling out uh, Israel and Judah's kings and leadership for their failure to obey the law and treat people well. All right, so that's the prophets of Israel. Now let's look at the prophets to Judah. Isaiah and Jeremiah are the two most famous ones, two longest prophets in the Bible. Isaiah is 66 chapters. Jeremiah is 40-something, 47 or something. Um, They both prophesied to Judah, but at opposite ends. So uh, Isaiah prophesied quite early on uh, in the time, actually at the time of the northern kingdom being defeated, the time of the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom, Isaiah was was prophesying. And then we have uh, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and lastly, Jeremiah, who prophesied at the time of the Babylonian exile. So I've talked about Isaiah a bit in the prof- in the podcast as well, and we will continue to, as there's 66 chapters to talk about. But Isaiah covers um, a wide range of topics to do with uh, lots of prophecies about the Messiah in the book of Isaiah as well, most notably probably Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. All right, so that's uh, enough on the divided kingdom. Let's move on to the next major chapter, which is the exile to uh, to Babylon. Okay, so the exile, I've written here the exile to Assyria and Babylon. I've kind of already touched on it in the previous chapter, but hey, we'll just go over my notes and see whatever else there is that I missed. So the assimilation of the northern kingdom, here we're talking about assimilation, which is what I just said. The assimilation of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians took place in 722 BC. After they were prophetically warned multiple times that would happen, they were given opportunities to repent and turn away from their error of their ways, their sinful ways, but they refused. So as I'd said, there was ethnic cleansing through deportation and intermarriage, and that led to the creation of the Samaritans. That I didn't mention. So Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. And so what happened was when they were exiled out, uh, assimilated in, other nations came and they came into the land and they began to worship Yahweh, but they weren't Jews. They were kind of like half-breed Jews. Maybe there were some Jews left there that interbred with them. And they started to worship Yahweh, even though they weren't pure Hebrews. And this was the half-breed people that had this pseudo-worship of of Yahweh, and it's actually those people who Jesus were interacting with Jesus at the time of the New Testament, most notably John chapter 4, the woman at the well in Samaria. These were despised people, perhaps even more notably the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which were people who they were deeply, deeply despised by the Jews because they were seen as looked down on, elitist, half-breeds, and so on. And uh, Jesus, on the other hand, didn't see them that way. He went out of his way to reach them, use them in positive analogies to tell stories about um, about how the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, which was just foreign and would not have made any sense to any Jew because there was no such thing as a Good Samaritan in their mind. And so uh, these were the people that lived. Now, there, there are still Samaritans living today. They're, they're down to, they won't intermarry and they're down to their last 
I, it's under 100 people living, Samaritans. And so they're actually saying their gene pool is starting to get to the point where they need to actually, if they don't allow others to come in and join them and intermarry and become a Samaritan, they will actually be out of, um, they'll become extinct because they can't have children. The gene pool is so small. So that's quite a fascinating story. They live in uh, a mountain, the very place, Mount Gerizim, I think it is the very place where um, they were living even 2,000 years ago in the time of Jesus. So that's the um, assimilation of the northern kingdom. Now let's look at the exile of the southern kingdom, the, the kingdom of Judah. Uh, Judah was defeated by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. He demolished the walls of Jerusalem, which was a common thing that uh, an invading emperor would do, obviously, to remove their defenses. He destroyed the temple. And he took everything of value that he could find, including all the gold in the temple and all this precious stuff. He took it all to Babylon. And he also deported the people to Babylon where they refused to intermarry and maintain their identity. So unlike the Assyrians uh, in the exile where the, the, the people kind of intermarried and were assimilated, not so. The Jews maintained their own ethnic identity and 70 years later were able to come home. So while they were in Babylon, they made a home for themselves. Some of Judah's finest formed a new Jewish community. So these were people who'd been exiled and they went there and they actually set themselves up in Babylon as their own Jewish community. They were um, a people group in exile away from their homeland. During that time, we have prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel, who both prophesied during that, inter that, during that exile period. Two and a half thousand years later, there are still Jews living in that part of the world. Although uh, in Iran specifically, it's becoming very hard to be a Jew. So many of them have left and escaped persecution. So there's less Jews there than there was in, in more recent times. But there is still Jewish identity and indeed Christian identity in that part of the world as well. Then the Babylonians were ultimately defeated by the Medio-Persian Empire. The next empire that came along were the Medes and the Persians, and they took over. And they were the ones who allowed the Jews to, to go back. My next slide here that I have says 70s and 490s. What I mean by that is that the Jews were in exile for 70 years. And I've talked about this on a podcast. Why was it 70 years? I think I was talking to Jeff Baxter about it. It was 70 years because... That was exactly the number of Sabbath years that they were supposed to give the land of Israel a rest, and it didn't. There were 490 years from the time that they entered the promised land to the time they were taken into exile. 490 years, and every seventh year they were supposed to let the land lay fellow, to, to let it rejuvenate. And we even know today from a scientific perspective, it's good to do that. Gets the nutrients to refresh. Otherwise, you can over-farm land and it can uh, it can be ruined. These days, we just try shoving more fertilizer in it, but it's nothing quite like letting the nutrients naturally grow in the land. And God had promised them, it was a trust issue. He said, if you do this, I'll provide for you. But there's no history anywhere that they actually ever did it. They never gave the land a rest. And so God says, well, you haven't done it for 490 years. That's 70 Sabbath years that the land has not had a rest that it needs. So I'm going to leave you in exile for 70 years and that will give the land its Sabbath rests. So that's the reason that they were in exile for 70 years. We also have during this time a prophecy from Daniel, the 70 weeks prophecy. This is a, a weird dream that Daniel gets, which uh, prophesies about the future of God's people and ultimately uh, predicts the coming of Jesus, a time when Jesus would come and 
um, and uh, present himself as the Messiah. And so, and they were actually used, they would use that uh, prophecy that 70 weeks, and a week is not 70 weeks, it's a week of years. So, another 490 year issue there. He says there's going to be 490 years um, of time, and they use that prophecy. There's all kinds of conjecture and different Old Testament, uh, sorry, Old End Times views about that scripture. I'm not going to go into that now, but they use that scripture to uh, predict the coming of the Messiah. At the end of the 70-year period, um, Cyrus, the Persian king, comes to the throne and he uh, issues a decree that says that all of the Jews who want to go back to their homeland can go back and they can rebuild their temple. That's the end of the Exodus period. It's a very exciting time when they head back home expecting that they get there and they're going to set up their new nation and it's going to be wonderful and all the dreams of the last couple of generations of one day maybe we'll get back to Jerusalem, they come about. That was the decree of Cyrus that did that. However, when they got there, uh, it didn't work out the way they thought it would. It uh, They still found themselves in a spiritual exile. They still found other foreign powers controlling them. And ultimately, after the exile, and um, after the Medes and the Persians came and did it, the Greeks came and the Romans came. So there was lots of time um, when they weren't experiencing the fullness of what they expected. Just quickly, prophets who speak and prophesy to the exiles. One of the reasons I'm mentioning who they prophesied to is because they're all out of order. You can't really look at them in the order they are in the Old Testament. You need to know uh, who they were speaking to because that affects what they were saying. So prophets to the exiles is Daniel and Ezekiel that I've already mentioned and also Obadiah. His little one-chapter prophecy is also to the exiles. So at the end of the 70 years, they return, and we're going to move there now, the return from exile. Okay, the return from exile. We're looking at the uh, books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, in the original Hebrew, it's not two different books. It's actually just one scroll, the Ezra-Nehemiah scroll, which covers spans a period um, where these two guys actually work together. Sort of, they, There's a bit of an overlap between them, but they kind of back onto each other. Ezra first, followed by Nehemiah. I think that's the way around it goes. Might be the other way around. All right, so what happened in the exile? Well, while they were in exile, the Judahites, which is what they were, the nation of Judah, they just became known as the Jews. So if you're wondering where the term Jews comes from, it just simply comes from uh, a rework of the word Judah. Judah, Jews, you can see the reference there. And so by the time of Jesus, they're just called the Jews. But that's And they still are called the Jews, but their Jews are the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, as they were called, even before they were the nation of of Israel. It's all the same people, Hebrews, Jews, Judahites, Israelites, think same same people group. All right, the book of Ezra. Book of Ezra records a time when they rebuild the temple. They Ezra does come first, by the way. They were rebuilding the temple. It also speaks about re-establishing Jewish worship. So after 70 years with no temple, Ezra comes along. He's a priest. He comes along. They rebuild the temple and they reinstigate Jewish worship sacrifices and so on and so forth again. Much smaller temple than Solomon's. Much, much smaller. Small. It's just a remnant of people. Um, a much smaller scale. But you can read about that in the book of Ezra. Following on from the book of Ezra is the book of Nehemiah, which now talks about the rebuilding of the city's walls. So they rebuilt the temple. Now they needed to rebuild some walls around the city to protect themselves. And that's what the book of Nehemiah is all about. 
Also happening during this time is the book of Esther. Now that's not happening in Jerusalem. That's actually happening and speaking about um, the Jews that had not returned from exile. There were actually a number of Jews that after 70 years in exile had built a home for themselves, had become quite comfortable, had a national identity. They still worshipped Yahweh, but they were comfortable living in exile in Babylon and in Susa, the other capital city of the Persians. And the book of Esther takes place there. So these are Jews that haven't returned and Esther becomes the queen under the king Xerxes and her uncle Mordecai becomes the prime minister. And that's the book of Esther. Takes place during the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah, but doesn't happen in Jerusalem. It happens in the capital city way, way over in the east. So we also have prophets who Old Testament prophets who prophesy to the returning exiles. Remember, we've had some that prophesied to Israel, some that prophesied to Judah, some that prophesied in the exile to the exiled Jews, and then there were some that prophesied later to the returning Jews, and that is Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries, and they are both prophesying about the rebuilding of the temple and calling the people to rebuild the temple. And then the last prophet, who comes uh, some probably 80 years later, um, is the letter, the book of the prophet Malachi. So he is the last book in the Old Testament. It's the last prophet in the Old Testament and uh, happens quite some time later. So we are talking, uh, what are we talking here? Probably about 100 years after they have returned from exile, the prophet Malachi comes along. And then lastly, before we head into the New Testament, we need to look at one more period of time, commonly called the silent years. This period, the silent years, I think uh, scholars have gotten less use out of this term. When I was a young Christian, I was taught that this was called the silent years. I've always called it that, but always fully aware that really, although it was silent, it was actually anything but silent. There was a lot of geopolitical stuff happening in the world. It was one of the most turbulent times in the history of the world, actually, in terms of upheaval of kingdoms and nations, especially in that part of the world where the nation of Israel is. So I would say it was anything but silent. It was silent in the sense the term comes from the fact that there were no prophets prophesying during that time. So after Malachi, there's no prophetic voice speaking to God's people that we have recorded for 400 years until until the New Testament. But it is a time, as I said, of upheaval. There's actually a prophecy in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a statue of himself, actually a statue is a, looking like a, a Babylonian king. And that statue has a gold head, a silver chest, a bronze waist, and iron legs and feet made with uh, sort of out of iron and clay, and then a big rock comes and smashes the temple to pieces, and the rock grows up and fills the world, just like some strange dream that we would have after we've eaten too much pizza. And Daniel interprets that dream, and he says that it's a prophecy that God has given Nebuchadnezzar the king about the kingdoms that would come afterwards. And he says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the gold head. You're the rich one. You're the king of the Babylonian empire. And after you comes a silver chest, which represents the Medes and Persians, which were the next empire. The bronze symbolizes the Greek empire, Alexander the Great and his, uh, his rulings and conquerings of the world. Lastly, there's, uh, well, almost lastly, is the iron legs, which symbolizes the Roman Empire. 
And then iron mixed with clay is the feet. So there's somehow you, you don't mix iron and clay together. So whatever's gonna that's gonna happen, it's gonna be brittle, it's gonna break apart. And this rock comes, this rock is Christ, this prophetic kingdom. One day Christ's rock will come and it will f- destroy the temple, the, the kingdoms of man. This is what you gotta be thinking about. These are earthly kingdoms. Even, even when they're trying to do their best, they're still failing. They're still eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're still trying to build their greatness on the back of treating people poorly and abuse of power. And all these kingdoms of man of the earth are flawed. And then one time, eventually, this kingdom of Christ will come and it will take over and rule the world. So that's what the prophecy is all about. And all of these kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Greeks, the Romans, they all happened during this 400 year period. Four kingdoms, four empires in in 400 years is pretty turbulent. In fact, in Israel, there's actually five because there's a period of about 100 years of that where they actually have independence and they they rule under um, Judas Maccabeus and his the Maccabees and they actually had their own ruling uh, people as well. So is, the people of Israel went through five kingdoms really in their in the space of a few hundred years. So here we go, which is what I was talking about: conquerors of the Holy Land during the pre-exilic period. The Assyri- prior to the exile, we had the Assyrians. They um, conquered the north. We had the Babylonians who conquered the Ju- Judah and ultimately led to the exile. And then after the post-exilic period, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and the Greeks were split into two, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. You can don't need to know that if you're not interested in your history. It was just that after Alexander died, uh, there was all kinds of vying for who was going to be the throne. And there were two different groups that were fighting against each other constantly. And then there was a period, as I said, of independence, and then ultimately the Romans came along, and it was the Romans that were in power at the time of Christ. And so during this time of geopolitical upheaval, God was working behind the scenes, and there were a lot of things that were taking place geopolitically that were actually necessary in order for the gospel of Christ to go forward and have the success that it needed. And I've listed those here. There was a common language Greek became the common language. In fact, even at the time of Jesus, the Romans had come along, conquered the Greeks, but they held on to the Greek language. It was the common language of the empire. They didn't even bother trying to put Latin as the common empire, the common language. They left it as Greek. So it became a common language. And in fact, during that time, there was a what we call the Septuagint translation. There were a group of 70 Greek Hebrew scholars, Jewish scholars, who got together and they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew, which is what it had been written in, into Greek. And it was this Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jesus most likely used. Most Jews were reading it. Perhaps um, those who were living in Israel were using Hebrew, but many Jews living in other parts of the empire, they spoke Greek. Some of them may not have even spoken Hebrew. And so they were using the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation. It's called Septuagint from uh, the word Sept7, actually 70. And it was to do with these 70 scholars. So the Greeks language language was there that made it easy to transmit information. It's like they had they didn't need Google Translate because they were all speaking. They all understood the same language. Made it easier for the gospel to spread across international borders. They had the Romans instituted what is called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, and uh, this did some really good things. 
there was a lot of good things that came out of the Roman rule. There was the Roman road system. You could get on a road and you could travel from one part of the empire to another. You could go all, you know, the saying, all lead, roads lead to Rome. That comes from this term, the Roman roads. And they would be all over the empire. These were um, patrolled by Roman legionaries. So it made travel relatively easy. In fact, I jokingly say that it would have been easier for Paul to get from uh, Asia Minor, which was Turkey, to Greece than it is for us today. I was trying to get us our tour in 2020 before it was cancelled from Turkey to Greece. And uh, it was very, very complicated to do it at a reasonable price because uh, we couldn't cross international borders very easily compared to what Paul could have done. Although he had to walk everywhere, I suppose. Uh, but these Roman roads help with that. Interestingly, despite the peace, obviously it was built on the back of slave labor and mistreatment of the poor. So there's always two sides to earthly kingdoms, good things and bad things. Um, they also, the Romans were really good with the Mediterranean as well because they had these massive galleys that were super fast, super fast once again because they were using slaves to row them and whipping them and pulling them out and replacing them with new ones. So it was built on the back of slavery, but they had these massive galleys that could chase down any ships so they basically alleviated uh, piracy on the seas and so it became uh, relatively safe to travel by sea as well as well as that there was a declining sense of national identity and religious practices part of that whole assimilation process that i was talking about with the assyrians was taking place they did really good job the romans doing what they enforcing their peace by making everybody look the same speak the same language use the same money worship the same gods in fact when the romans came along they just adopted the greek gods they just renamed their existing roman gods with greek names and you were well, basically just appropriated their existing roman gods for the greek ones and so they were just all about trying to enforce this unity that looks good on the surface, but underneath is all messed up and it's, uh, it's removing diversity, it's squashing personality, it's harming the image of God in people. But despite all those bad things, it did allow the gospel to go forward very easily. And so we're going to look at a, a quick map, which once again will be hard to show um, for those of you who aren't listening, but this is just a map of the Roman world. And during the time of the uh, preparation for the um, for the gospel to go forward, the center of power of the nations that were controlling Israel moved from the far east to the far west. So for the better part of uh, the first 2,000 years of so let's say 1,500 years of Israel's history from the time they entered the Promised Land until the time of the Roman Empire, probably 1,400 years, they had been interacting, buying and selling, being ruled by and ruling over the nations that were generally in the ancient Near East, which is uh, nations to the east of the Mediterranean, uh, Iraq, what we would say is modern-day Iraq, Syria, Saudi Arabia, all those sorts of areas, Iran today. Um, but in the Roman Empire came it. It was it was obviously centered in Europe in the Mediterranean. It's centered around the Mediterranean, and with Israel being right on the Mediterranean, it switched and it became under the control of the Roman Empire. And so the Romans had lots of different provinces. They broke up their their um, whole. Uh, empire into provinces with governors over them and there's a couple that are worth of worth mentioning just here that particularly come up in the new testament as you're reading and that is the 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 province of judea and the province of well Cilicia, um, Syria, Cilicia. I'm just actually thinking about it now. And then Paul talks about a whole lot of others. Asia, Pamphylia, Laconia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia. Basically all of these, uh, Lycia, they all appear 
in the New Testament in the book of Acts as Paul travels. All provinces that are either in Israel, Lebanon, Syria, or Turkey today. And so that's how it worked. And so when you read these um, read these provinces, you'll know where they came from. They were just the, the form of governance. They were like the states that uh, the Roman Empire had broken themselves up into. They were all Roman, under Roman control with their own governors. And Judea obviously comes from Jews. So they, um, they maintained the region of the Jews and just renamed it with a variation, calling it the region of Judea. And that is the region that is um, down south in Jerusalem. And there was actually another region where Jesus spent most of his time, and that was Galilee. That was actually a separate area as well in the north of the nation of Israel. So Jesus spent most of his time between Judea and Galilee. All right. So that happened during the silent years the Romans ultimately took over. And before we get into the New Testament, we cannot escape talking about the Herodian dynasty, King Herod the Great. This guy did nothing on a small scale. He was he came to power in 37 BC and he died about 4 BC. Uh, he was the guy who uh, led to the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem, actually. He, he became incredibly neurotic and uh, inse- and insecure in his old age. He, he um, s- killed one of his wives and he despaired that he killed her and he bu- built a tower in her name. Uh, there seems to be evidence that he set, had two of his sons executed. He was, he was like Henry VIII on steroids, this guy was, Herod the Great. And uh, he also, though did some major building programs around the nation of Israel uh, that that were are still there today. Everywhere you go, you cannot escape Herod the Great. If you go to Israel today, you cannot escape him. He, his building prog- programs, the ruins of his building programs are everywhere. Most notably, the temple expansion and his other building projects. And so on the next slide, I'll come back to the other one in a minute, but on the next slide, you'll be able to see if you're watching a picture of the temple that Herod built. He enlarged the temple that had been built into a massive complex that was um, around at the time of Jesus. You can often see pictures. There's like columns all around the outside of it. It's just absolutely huge. Um, And it was Herod who did that as a gift to the Jews, really, just to say, look, I'm your king. And they all honored him and respected him for it. And that's what he did. He built this massive temple. He also built some other major projects. He built the city of Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, named it after Caesar. And uh, he built a a city with its own port. There was no port on the Mediterranean that they could use to come and go. So Herod decided to build one. He floated a whole bunch of barges, put concrete in them, set them out there, blew them up, and he let them sink and created a a man-made harbor. When I say he, he did it on the back of his slaves. And uh, it's the ruins of that are still there today. It's since gone into the sea. It's collapsed under earthquakes and so on. But he had a beautiful city by the sea and he pumped in water from miles away. They reckon that there are enough water in this city. Uh, it's the same water that an average Western household has today, which is phenomenal in a day when they had running water in this city out of nowhere. So he, he did everything on a grand scale. He had a palace on the top of the, a mountain in the Dead Sea called Masada. And I've been there. You can see photos of it. Incredible facility. And he, he lived up on there. And it was actually the place where the last stand of the Jews was um, many years after Herod's death, 70 years later, um, before they were defeated by the Romans. And uh, the Jews were ultimately defeated for their rebellion against the Romans. So that's Herod the Great. He was succeeded by a number of his sons. 
Um, most notable to us is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas reigned from 4 BC to 39 AD, and it was this Herod that Jesus interacted with in the Gospels um, when he was in his ministry. It was this Herod who, um, was un- who was king when Jesus was put to death. It's this Herod who related to Pontius Pilate, Herod Antipas. And then he was succeeded by Herod Agrippa, who I think might have been his nephew, but I can't remember for certain. Herod Agrippa is the Herod who uh, Paul deals with in his dealings and his missionary trips. He's the one who he talks to. So this Herodian dynasty continued for some time, and uh, I haven't got time to go into where they came from in any great depth, but they weren't Jews. He was called the king of the Jews, Herod the Great, but they weren't. They were actually um, Idumeans. They were actually Edomites. They were from a neighboring country, and they became he became the king of the Jews by marrying one of the Jewish aristocracy, and hence he was able to convince Rome, hey, I'll look after to them, I'll keep them peace. And he had a, a relationship with the Romans, uh, quite a sordid one. He was in and out with them a bit, but uh, he managed to be the ultimate politician and won the Romans over, and he had incredible power. He was also, I should say one other thing about Herod the Great, they reckon he was probably the richest man who's ever lived. He, he would make uh, people like Elon Musk and, uh, you know, Steve Jobs uh, look insignificant because his family controlled the spice trade. Um, from from Asia, modern day Asia, India, from the subcontinent through to Europe, they paid the taxes. They controlled that, which was the spice trade was huge. It's like think think oil moguls, Saudi Arabian oil moguls. That's what his family was. They would they came from incredible wealth. Hence, they were able to do all these great building projects as well. All right, we are going to move on into the New Testament now and look at the Christ. Okay, so here we are looking at Jesus the Christ. Now, we're not going to spend a massive amount of time in the story of Jesus. I'm going to presume that you actually already know that. I'm trying to give a context to some of the things that maybe are less known. So we'll just do a brief flyover of Jesus. And he is the man who changed the world. He lived for 33 years. He had a public ministry of about three and a half years. And approximately today, 2.1 billion or one third of the world's population identify as Christian. For a man who taught for such a period of time, that is remarkable. Within 300 years of his message, his message and his followers through uh, their living out of that message had brought the Roman Empire to its knees, a great empire. And unlike all the other empires that have fallen on the back of, um, on the back of you know, defeating by the sword, the Roman Empire fell on the other end of the sword through people being martyred for their faith, for standing up for others, for the poor and the needy and looking after the sick and the lame and the hurting. And that in itself turned the world upside down. And that's the result of Jesus' teaching. I want to talk about the historical evidence for Christ. There is absolutely no doubt among any reputable scholar that Jesus really did live. He did teach and he did die around this time. Uh, any scholar worth their weight in salt Salt Christian or otherwise will uh, will say that there's too much evidence to say that this wasn't a made-up story, that Jesus really did live. He began his public ministry either 26 AD or 29 AD, and his death was either 29 AD or 32 AD, depending on how you date certain archaeological evidence, but around that time. And there is also significant historical evidence for the resurrection. In fact, I'd 
the other teachings on this, um, as have many other scholars much more advanced than I, but there is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than for any of the other major historical events. There's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, literary evidence. We can be more confident that that took place than that Julius Caesar, the king of the empire, of the Roman Empire, even actually ever lived. So there is really strong uh, literary, common sense, historical, geographical evidence that the resurrection. In fact, friends, our entire faith hangs on the resurrection. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, there's there's no faith. You might as well um, eat today and drink tomorrow because then you're going to die tomorrow. So um, while I may be willing to be a little bit more flexible on some of the accuracy of some of the other events that we've talked about earlier in this episode. I cannot and will not sacrifice uh, my integrity and think that the resurrection is an allegory. That is liberal Christianity. That is dangerous in my opinion. And, and my entire faith requires that Jesus has been raised from the dead, the sinless son of God who died um, in my place for my sins. So we're going to move on quickly and just give a quick overview of Jesus' life. We'll start with his childhood. He was born in Bethlehem, even though his parents lived in Nazareth due to a Roman census. While he was in Bethlehem living there, the Magi from the east, from interestingly from, from the Persian area, the Babylonian Persian area, they came, they visited in Bethlehem. Uh, then they escaped from Herod the Great, who's this crazed maniac I was talking about. They escaped, Joseph took Mary, and they escaped down to Egypt until Herod had died. And then they returned back to Joseph's, presumably Joseph's hometown, Nazareth, and he was raised there. And he was lost in Jerusalem at the age of 12, only one gospel, Luke tells us about that and probably more that his parents lost him than he got lost. He seems like he knew exactly where he was. And then in the three years of Jesus' ministry, scholars tend to break these up. And there's a bit of conjecture around how you can break up these events really chronologically. And I think I agree with them. I think it's hard to do it all chronologically. If you try and fit all the stories into a chronological timeline, you will get yourself in a bit of a, a bind because the the, the writers aren't necessarily worried about chronological timeline. They're worried about telling a story. And if a story has to be told out of order in terms of date to be able to make the point, they're quite comfortable with that. They don't see that as poor history. We do today because we want to fit everything together. Historians want it all accurate. But that's great, but that's just not what they were trying to do in their time. So in the first year, called the year of inauguration, the scholars call it. This isn't Bible language. This is scholarly language. We have the story of John the Baptist, we have Jesus baptized, we have Jesus tempted. We have the calling of the first disciples. We have the first miracle at Cana and we have the first trip to Jerusalem. The second year when Jesus is really thriving in his ministry and crowds are following him, the year of popularity, we have his widening influence among the Amharites, which is the commoners. The, he, that was one of the things the Jews, Jewish elite didn't like about him is that he was getting the attention of the commoners who they were jealous. They wanted all the attention. They wanted all the power for themselves. We have multiple miracles recorded in this time. We have the 12 disciples being formed in this time, and he ministers in both Judea and in Galilee. And then in the third year, the popularity, the, well, the opposition begins to rise. I shouldn't say the popularity goes away. It doesn't really, but the opposition from the Jewish ruling elite starts to rise, and there's increased pushback due to his popularity. See, they viewed him as a threat to Roman peace and their positions. So they had managed to negotiate a, a kind of tentative peace with Rome where Rome would let them do their stuff. But they also got benefits out of that because they were given kickbacks from Rome and they were able to um, rule over and control the people. And so they weren't very happy about that. And then right at the end of Jesus' life, we have the Passion Week and a large portion of the Gospels 
is given to this short period of a few days from the time Jesus enters Jerusalem riding the donkey until his crucifixion and his resurrection. It all takes place in, in less than a week, a Passion Week, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And then we have his appearances over 40 days and his ascension 40 days after his resurrection. So that's the timeline of Jesus. Now we're going to move on to wrap this up with two more segments that are outside. Well, this first one's partly in the Bible. And then um, then we're going to look at beyond the time of the close of the Bible. And the last one we're going to talk about is the end of the age. So the church age, the era, the era that we find ourselves in now, it's the period of the apostles, it's the dark ages, and it's the reformation period. And so it all begins in the book of Acts. So after Jesus ascends to heaven, we have the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, chapter one, verse eight, Jesus said to the disciples, I want you to go out from this place. Don't stay in Jerusalem, go out beyond Jerusalem, start in Jerusalem and then go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so that's ultimately what the book of Acts records is the ministry beyond and, and, and the rest of the New Testament, the ministry beyond Jerusalem. Peter, largely in the New Testament, uh, ministered to the Jews. In the book of Acts, he certainly ministered to the Jews. Later on in life, he's ministering to Jews and Gentiles. But early on, his ministry was to the Jews. Paul's ministry was predominantly to the Gentiles. And most of his ministry was in Asia or Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and Greece and Macedonia, which is um, modern-day Greece and Macedonia. Not Macedonia, probably more modern-day Greece. Um, And then there was a period beyond the end of the closing of the, the Old Testament writings when Christianity became deeply persecuted. There was a lot of persecution. There was a lot of martyrdom. It had begun in the New Testament period. It had begun under the rule of Nero in the time uh, that Paul is writing, while Paul is still alive, but that persecution continued for another couple of hundred years as well. So I've got a, a, a diagram, and you can get this particular map really easily. It's a diagram of Paul's missionary journeys. And this is actually a good one to have in front of you if you're doing your Bible reading and you're reading the book of Acts, because Paul did um, sort of three missionary journeys and then ultimately a trip to Rome. That That's recorded um, in the book of Acts. So there's some evidence that he did some further travels. He was released at the end of the book of Acts, um, probably did some further travels and then came back and was ultimately executed in Rome. Uh, but that's beyond the scope of the book of Acts. So this map shows how Paul went back and forward, basically went back and forward from um, his uh, sort of the Israel area or the Antioch, which was a church that was north of Israel, his home church, back and forward all over uh, modern day Turkey, and modern day Greece through the provinces of, I'm going to list some of them and I know he goes through. He goes through the province of Syria, Cilicia, Cappadocia, Galatia, Philippia, uh, no, Pamphylia, Lycia, Asia, Bithynia. He doesn't go to Thrace. He does Macedonia. He goes to uh, he goes to Archaea as well. So lots of different pro- Roman provinces that he ministered to. And in a very short period of time, he had planted churches across about probably what is half of the Roman Empire. So certainly half of the northern Mediterranean Roman Empire. Um, and ultimately also ended up in Rome preaching there as well. So as we move on beyond the time of the apostles, we head into uh, the the 
time we'd call the Middle Ages, I suppose. And uh, it starts with a Christian empire. And after the better part of 300 years of Roman uh, persecution of Christians, there was a king came to the head of the Roman Empire. His name was Constantine. And uh, he became the first Christian Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. And he issued in 313 AD an edict of Milan, which allowed for re- religious tolerance. So contrary to what people often say, Con- Constantine didn't make Christianity the head religion, the, the only religion of the empire. What he did is he allowed freedom of religion. So there would be people would not be persecuted based on their faith. So he was became a Christian himself, uh, it would appear, but he allowed others to worship. Um, in 325 AD, he instituted a council called the Council of Nicaea, which we still get the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed from today, which is really the fundamental foundational belief upon what we would consider to be Orthodox Christianity as opposed to other uh, pseudo-Christian terms. Uh, this is, I'm not going to remember it off the top of my head, I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, born or, uh, not born, but begotten of the Father, but not made, uh, true light from light, and it goes on and on and on, talks about the Virgin, born of the Virgin Mary, it talks about uh, died under crucified under Pontius Pilate, talks about the church and the spirit and resurrection of the dead. Uh, It's the fundamental belief upon which all Christian churches that are of of orthodox faith, when I say orthodox, I don't mean orthodox as in Eastern Orthodox, I just mean that hold to uh, what we would consider orthodox belief of what what it means to be a Christian. So that was the Council of Nicaea. Um, Some years later, the Edict of Thessalonica came along. This is, I think, a couple of emperors later. This is Emperor Theodosius, and it was him who actually issued a uh, a statement that said Christianity must be the sole uh, state religion under persecution or pain of death, I think it said. And uh, you'd think, wonderful, that's great. You know, everyone's being enforced to be a Christian. Well, that was the beginning of the decline. From then on, things went downhill in a hurry because that was never Jesus' intention. Jesus isn't into enforcing things upon anybody. God has given us free will. So it might have been intended to do the right thing, but uh, it did the, exactly the opposite. And it actually sent the um, Europe into the Dark Ages, into the medieval period of Europe. I'm just going to touch on what happened briefly, the main key events. We have the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 AD. So Rome um, fell. I think it fell to some of the tr- Germanic tribes from the north. But the, uh, the Eastern Roman Empire continued. The Byzantine Empire continued from 476 until it was destroyed in 1453 by the Ottoman Turks. So it basically, the Roman Empire, even though I always grew, grew up thinking it, it finished in about 476, it actually continued in the east, in uh, Constantinople, in modern-day Turkey. It continued from there for another thousand years, right throughout the, the, the Dark Ages, really. The Byzantine Empire was still a... a strong Christian-based empire. But during that time, we also saw Islam's rise. Islam began in the 630s and through to the 730s. And during that time, it really, in a 100-year period, it it conquered all of North Africa and uh, was constantly trying to take through um, throughout Europe as well. Um, But it, it didn't prevail in that regard. The Then in 1054, there was a great east-west schism 
and the western part of Europe separated itself off from the eastern part of Europe over theological purposes. And we end up with um, what would be called the Roman Catholic Church today. And in the east, we have the uh, Orthodox churches, which are all kind of linked together. There's multiple ones. There's the Greek Orthodox, Macedonian Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, so numbers of different ones. But they were all um, separated out from the, the this great schism from the Roman Catholic Church and most of our well-being um, coming from the UK, obviously where a lot of our Western uh, identity comes from, we would be more um, familiar with and associated with the Roman Catholic Church. But not so much if you go to Greece or any of the Eastern European countries. They all they're not Roman Catholic; they are Orthodox. Uh, then there were some attacks by um, Islam upon Jerusalem uh, in the late. Uh, sort of around the 1000, 1095 BC mark. And uh, that sparked the Crusades, which was a, um, an effort on behalf of some of the Western Europeans to try to retake, in their mind, retake the Promised Land. And so they did that by coming with swords and trying to conquer, the uh, launch the Crusades and, and defeat and kick out the Muslims. Uh, and that went back and forward for a number of times, but ultimately wasn't successful. And on the, in the process, the Crusaders themselves, who were trying to do all this in the name of Christ, did anything but operate in the name of Christ. They were money-hungry, they were licentious, they would rape and pillage as they went. They were terrible. An absolute blight on the name of the Christian church were the Crusaders. Uh, and then ultimately, the main empire that kind of the Muslim empire that kind of took over and uh, had control over the west, or over the east for uh, for a long, long time, for the better part of 700 years, was the Ottoman Empire. They uh, ruled in Turkey uh, from 12 from in Constantinople. Actually, they defeated Constantinople and they uh, in 1453, even though they were around for a few hundred years before that. But they defeated Constantinople and they ruled from there until 1922. At the end of World War One, the Ottoman Empire then shrunk back. And then about um, 1500, about 500 years ago, we had the Protestant Reformation. So this was the, uh, the design of the printing press, which led to the rapid ability to release scriptures, print scriptures in their own language, and it went around, and that actually led to Martin Luther um, and many other reformers speaking up against some of the Many, many of the things that they believed were wrong teaching or wrong practice of the Roman Catholic Church. Some of them were doctrinal and some of them were just misappropriating or misusing people. In fact, many ways it was very similar to what the prophets in the Old Testament were on about all the time. Those in power were mistreating and abusing the weak and that God never looks, looks kindly on that. And so the Reformation began in 1517. And then in 1534, the Church of England was formed. Henry VIII decided he wanted to uh, he wanted to be able to divorce his wife Catherine and marry Anne Boleyn. The Pope wouldn't let him do it. So he said to the Pope, well, that's it. I'm starting my own church and I'm going to make myself the king of it. So uh, apologies to the Anglicans out there, of which I have Anglican roots. But the history of the Anglican Church, the, the origin story of the Anglican Church is not a pleasant one. Not to say that that is all bad. It's wonderful, wonderful, faithful Anglican people. But uh, the origin story of the Anglican Church is not a great one. Um, and then we have what, I, what we would, under a, a large umbrella term, called evangelicalism. We would consider ourselves evangelical churches today. Protestant churches, that there's like a subcategory, if you like, of the Protestant churches that would consider themselves evangelical. And that it 
took place in the 1730s and the 1820s in the United States. We had two great awakenings where there was great revivals and many people found Jesus. And then right at the start of the 20th century, the Pentecostal movement began, baptism in the Holy Spirit, and it spread out across the world. Um, and there are probably about a billion Pentecostal, charismatic, tongue-speaking, supernatural-believing Christians today. And then in uh, I, I put this category in there myself, the reunification of the Western church. What I've noticed in the 2000s, considering even from when I first became a Christian um, in around 1989, in uh, the more recent times, there has been a lot more willingness to unite over things. Whereas when I was first a Christian, Pentecostals wouldn't relate to Baptists very well and everyone looked down on one another and everyone second judged everyone else and looked at what they weren't doing right. And while there are still extremes on all aspects of that, on all perspectives, what I've found is that there is many churches willing to um, find some middle ground, look for common ground, look for places of unity. And so that's a really encouraging thing to see, that churches are are looking to see what they have in common rather than see what they have apart from one another. So, And for this uh, period of pretty much since the time of Paul, right through until uh, about 50 years ago, Christianity was centered in Europe. It was centered around the Roman Empire, uh, centered around the Byzantine Empire, the large center of the world for Christians. The, those that seemed to be the ones in the know, the ones with influence, the Christian ones with influence, were all the European nations. But what's happened since the mid 20th century is that uh, there's a new movement, which is a geopolitical movement, a move to the global south. When they mean that, they move a move towards Africa, a move towards Asia, and uh, there has accompanying that a Christian global south movement. So there is a massive revival taking place in Africa, in South America, and in the Asian countries, so much so that if it continues, probably already is so, that the greatest, most successful, influential churches, those that are having the most impact, are no longer European churches, are no longer churches affiliated with the West, even though we're in the South, we would be Western in that regard, having been, uh, as Australians, having been colonized by um by Europeans, but the global South, the South Americans, the Africans, the Asians are seeing a massive move of God, a new awakening taking place there among those people. All right, we're nearly there. We're going to move on and finish off looking at the end times, the second coming, resurrection, and judgment. So in our final stop on today's journey, which has probably been considerably more than two hours, we are going to look at the second coming, resurrection and judgment. Now, I'm not going to get into a massive amount of telling you what I believe and what I don't believe here. Uh, There is way too much conjecture. There is way too much to talk about in a a simple overview tour. But I have a diagram that kind of shows uh, the age that we are in and how the second coming and all that sort of stuff fits together. So in this particular diagram, we have like, what do they call it, where there's two circles overlap? A Venn diagram. And we have the fallen world, the, 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 the age prior to the first coming of Christ, where the world is in sin and there is depravity and there is decay. God's still trying to work out his plan. And then we have the first coming of Christ, which issues in um, ushers in the church age, the age that we find ourselves in now. And that overlaps with the fallen world. That's why bad things still happen in the world. That's why there is still sickness in the world. But because it overlaps and the church age and God's kingdom has 
begun and has come near, we can believe for God's kingdom values. We can believe for the future. We can believe that healing and provision and peace is available to us. And we live in this tension period where the kingdom has been inaugurated, but hasn't yet been fulfilled. It will be. And that's the hope that we have, that the kingdom to come, the age to come, the Bible calls it, where the kingdom of God will come following Christ's second coming. And there will be true peace and God's plan will be accomplished on the earth. And so that's kind of like a a brief uh, overview of the end times and the structure of the way it's all supposed to go, the things that we look forward to. Now, what I want to do when I talk about the end times is I just want to mention um, a few different views. There are so many different views based on different readings and interpretations of the book of uh, Revelation, stuff that's written in uh, in the book of, books of Thessalonians, stuff that's written in Zechariah and much of the Old Testament. And so there are different perspectives. There are different views. And there is first one I want to mention is amillennialism. Amillennialism believes that uh, there is no actual millennium. A millennium is a thousand years. They don't believe in a thousand year period. They just believe that that is purely metaphorical, purely figurative. And when it talks about Christ reigning for a thousand years and the saints reigning with him, it's just a metaphorical picture. That's amillennialism. Premillennialism believes that we are in a period before a literal thousand-year period of reign when Christ and his church will reign upon the earth. And there are two different perspectives within that. There is the historic perspective, which, in fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull up my notes on this because it will make it much, much quicker, and I won't make mistakes on this. I had some good notes about it. Okay, so the historic premillennialism. Here's what I got ChatGPT to tell me. This viewpoint maintains that Christ's second coming will precede a a literal millennium, a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. After this period, the final judgment will occur. This view is called the historic because it was the dominant eschatological view in the early church. So it's historic in the sense that this is what's predominantly been believed by most of the early church church fathers, that uh, there would come a time when Jesus would reign literally upon the earth for a thousand years. Then there's another category within our premillennialism called dispensational premillennialism. And this is the left behind theology for those that have read the fictional books. This is a relatively new theology and I held to this for a long, long time. I actually don't hold to this anymore. I have changed my way, uh, I should say. Uh, I'm not saying I'm 100% convinced it's wrong, but I'm pretty confident that it's not right. Uh, but I'm open. The thing about these end times views is you've got to be open to... Um, I had someone say to me once, I'm a pan-millennial, pan-millennialist. I just believe it'll all pan out in the end. I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. In the end, the message is that uh, we have a hope in God's kingdom coming and wiping away every tear. But so a lot of diehard dispens- dispensationalists will, will convince us this is the only truth. And if you don't believe this, you're in error. In fact, you're in dangers of the fires of hell, they'll even try to tell you. So this is what it says. This view, common in evangelical and fundamentalist circles, involves a future seven-year tribulation during which the Antichrist will reign, followed by Christ's second coming and a literal thousand-year reign on earth. The concept of the rapture, where believers are caught up to meet Christ before the tribulation, is a distinctive feature of this perspective. This rapture mentality that you may or may not have heard of, that somehow Christians will be caught up, raptured up. And I held to that for a long time. But as I say, I don't anymore. 
But even within this dispensationalist rapture theory, there's actually three different views about when the rapture takes place. Some say it happens at the beginning of the tribulation, which is a seven-year period. Some say it happens in the middle, and some say it happens after. So there's a lot of conjecture around all of that. But I personally don't necessarily hold to the dispensational premillennialism. In fact, if I had to pick any of them, I'd probably pick the historic premillennialism because I think there's been a lot of, that's the prevailing view that a lot of Christians have had throughout time. So we've had amillennialism, premillennialism, then postmillennialism. Postmillennialism says this. It says that they postmillennialists believe that Christ will return after a literal or metaphorical thousand years of peace and righteousness on earth. They often believe that it's the church's responsibility to create this period of peace, which eventually will lead to the second coming of Christ. So if it's literal, I guess we've got to work out if the church is going to be able to ever bring a thousand years of peace to the earth on our own, or if it's metaphorical, then I assume that they, they would think that when it's done and it's peaceful enough, Jesus will show up. That's the post-millennial view. Then we have preterism. Preterists believe that many or all of the prophecies concerning the end times, especially those in the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse, which is a prophecy that Jesus gives about the destruction of the temple, that these were fulfilled in the first century AD, particularly in the destruction of Jerusalem's temple in 70 AD. There's a spectrum of belief with preterism, with full preterists arguing all prophecies have been fulfilled, while partial preterists contend that some, such as the second coming, are still future events. I guess actually that's where I'd lie these days. Um, I'm not even sure about the whole post, the actual literal millennial thing. Um, I'm open to that if people have believed that, but I think I'd probably hold to the fact that a lot of the prophecies in the book of Revelation, for instance, that for a long time I had thought were future, I actually now am much more comfortable with thinking they were speaking to the people in the first century that they were written in. So that's just where I sit. You can have a different opinion and that's totally fine. We can still agree and unite around Jesus. And the last one is idealism. Idealists view that the apocalyptic literature of the Bible as symbolic portrayals of the battle between good and evil. The events described aren't necessarily literal, historical, or prophetic, but rather spiritual realities. The end times then aren't specific events or ongoing spiritual, but ongoing spiritual realities experienced by the church throughout its existence. So they're basically just metaphorically speaking about all the prophecies, saying, well, this is a this is a commentary on human behavior. This is a commentary on realities of sin in the world and victory over good and evil. I think there's probably some truth in that too. Uh, personally, I think so. I don't know that I would not hold to some of the, I wouldn't dismiss everything as non-literal, but I think uh, there's probably a bit of good, healthy stuff in that. So I've changed my view. I'm not saying you should change your view, but I just wanted to point out that there are different views about this second coming of Jesus, the end times and what it looks like. And our final segment for this entire episode, we're going to just take a moment to talk about final judgment and eternal life. And I will be talking about this on the podcast in our interviews as well. Uh, and once again, it's a little bit like some of the stuff to do with end times. We can piece a few things together, but I want to stop short of some kind of definitive statement about what this looks like, because I think it's trying to use um, human understanding to illustrate spiritual principles. But the Bible talks about a final judgment. Jesus spoke about it. Whatever it looks like, there's a final judgment. And there's different aspects of this. There's what the Bible calls the Bema judgment. It says, we will all come before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus, and Paul says, and we will all be called to give an account for the things that we have done in this life. This Bema seat seems to be a, a well actually was a physical seat where the, the Roman emperor or the leader, the, 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 um, 
procurator would would sit and pronounce victory at the games upon those that were um, in power, who'd won and all that kind of stuff and issue prizes and awards. So it wasn't a seat of a court of law where you were pronouncing some kind of judgment or punishment. It was a seat where you would be uh, awarded and so, and rewarded. So this Bema seat said, Paul seems to be saying, Jesus will sit on this seat and he will reward those for what they have done um, that is good. In the life of the, in their life following Christ, there is also another type of judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment that we read about in the Book of Revelation, and this seems to be a much more significant judgment in terms of the punishment. This is this is a legal place where people are being judged and punished, or uh, according to their actions that they have done. And what happens at this great wise judgment, it says that people are cast into the lake of fire. And this leads to a question around what happens to people when they die. And there are different views on this um, that are quite a hot topic of debate at the moment. Um, One is eternal conscious torment. This is the one I was raised to believe in. And um, this is probably the one that's the prevailing view. If you've been a Christian for any length of time that, uh, you know, Christians will suffer eternal conscious torment. They will be aware of their suffering forever. And it's been held. uh, I've probably found that while I'm comfortable with the concept of of judgment, I've probably found that some of the scriptures that I used to hang my faith on for this probably are a little bit out of context. So I'm not saying it's not the case, but that's just one view. But it's not the only perspective on what happens when we die after judgment. There is another one called the annihilationist view view, or it's sometimes called conditional immortality, which says that only those who have followed Christ will actually be able to eat from the tree of life and enter into eternal life. In other words, uh, when we sin, we become mortal. And only after following Christ do we have the ability to enter into eternal life, which is to say that those who haven't followed Christ, when they are cast, it says, into the lake of fire, that they are actually annihilated. They cease to be. Now, this has some problems, but it also has some encouragement because, uh, in one sense, because it it seems to fit a little bit with the concept that, um, you know, that God isn't making people suffer for all eternity. Maybe that's where the whole Catholic doctrine of, of, of purgatory came from, this struggle with the fact that, initially, with this fact that God would make people suffer for eternity. Now, I'm not saying it's true. There are a, a number of Christian people who I respect who do hold to conditional immortality. Um, there's also a third one. I didn't have my notes, but um, it's called a universalist view, which says that all people will eventually um, be loved and accepted. And uh, there's been a number of, um, increasingly number of prominent people speaking to that view today. I have some significant problems with that. Most notably, as much as I'd love to be able to say all people would find their way to Jesus, most notably, I, I have a concern with the fact that how can that be free will? God's given us free will and then he takes it away. That doesn't seem to be a very loving thing to do. And C.S. Lewis famously said, either we will say to God, thy will be done, or God will say to us, thy will be done. And so I think there has to be a space for people to choose God or choose not uh, to, to worship God. And so that's kind of the overview of the final judgment. Then eternal life. Now, the most prevailing thing I want to say as we wrap up this podcast is that the prevailing common view is that we will go and we will live with Jesus in heaven forever. Can I tell you that that belief has only just really been a couple of hundred years old? That might come as a shock to you because you think that's fundamental. When I die, I go to be with Jesus in heaven. That's actually not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament doesn't teach about a destruction of 
the earth. It teaches about a refinement of the earth, a new beginning, in the same way that the flood was a new beginning, in the same way that the exile was a new beginning. It talks about God uh, in Peter. It says that he will, uh, once again, he will uh, roll up the heavens and the earth, but it's for a new beginning. There's supposed to be a a unification of heaven and earth. In some way, we will live on a new heavens and a new earth, a united heaven and earth. It's not that we leave earth and go to heaven. It's that our job in the Bible is to bring heaven to earth. And ultimately, that's where we will live. That's actually what the biblical writers were saying, in my opinion. And so that might become a bit of a shock to you. We'll probably talk about it more on the podcast. But I want to leave you with that cliffhanger that when you die, it doesn't necessarily mean you go to heaven and float on clouds with Jesus for all eternity. Hey, thanks for being with me today. I hope that's helpful. Uh, It's a resource that you can go back to a few times and I look forward to talking to you on a future episode. God bless.